Yeah, talking about liquidiv.com, promo code Nooners at checkouts. You see us drinking it on the show every single day. Where would we be, Japes, without Liquid IV in our lives? Dehydrated, we'd have headaches, we'd be tired, yeah. exhausted. Yep. Not be able to get through the day, get through work. We'd be sick all the time. I'd be hungover. <laughs> Every single day. Love the liquid IV. Liquid IV hydrates you with benefits like electrolytes, essential vitamins, and clinically tested nutrients with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drinks out there, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's just a little tiny stick full of powder. Pop it in 16 ounces of water. You're good to go. What's your reckon, Jabes? Double or triple hydrated? I would say double. I'd say triple. What? Nay. I'll say triple today. Huge fan of Liquid IV. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration. With Liquid IV, get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code Nooners at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code Nooners at liquidiv.com. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Welcome to the Ross Patterson Revolution! Happy Turkey Day. I already said Happy Thanksgiving in the, in the, the first part of A Night She Cries while he rides his steed. So I'm going to mix it up. I'm going to say Happy Turkey Day. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed part one of A Night She Cries while he rides his steed, the first ever romance novel for dudes. And uh, hopefully it's, it's helping you get through your drives and or flights. I should say flights too, uh, in case you're you got a, you got a big trip coming up uh, cross country or something. I say cross country because it's six and a half hours. Or maybe you're going to fucking Europe or something. Oh, that would be fun, huh? Um, that would be a real joy. Uh, here is is part two of a night she cries while he rides a steed. Uh, first, we have some sponsors before we hop back into that. As always, straightrazors.com. They have been there since day one. Um, not only do I love their products, but I love them as people. And uh, they've got the finest shaving products in the biz. They've also, I mean, look, it's a dope ass kit that looks like it's from like fucking Tombstone. Um, looks like it's from the late 1800s. If you get this gift for somebody, they'll be totally impressed. And if you type in revolution for 20% off, it's it's like you're getting it at fucking free. So it's a nice fucking awesome gift to get for a dude. And uh, just to say thanks, if not, just try a bottle of their aftershave, their cologne. It's fantastic. It's called Smolder, and it's the greatest goddamn thing on earth. They've also got shampoos, uh, conditioners, you name it. Um, it's incredible. Go to straightrazors.com and support the show. Just, just grab something from their store. Uh, type in the promo code REVOLUTION for 20% off. Again, that's straightrazors.com. Type in the promo code REVOLUTION for 20% off. 
Uh, next up, we've got StrikeForceEnergy.com. Yeah! Uh, Strikeforce Energy gets you all hopped up. If you've if you got the long drive, you're going to want to grab a pack and squeeze it into your drink and get fucking loose. The cans aren't going to do it. Monster's not going to do it. Kickstart's not going to do it. Uh, Red Bull is definitely not going to do it. It's time to kick the can, kids. Let's get fucking wet here, all right? Go to StrikeForceEnergy.com. Type in the promo code REVOLUTION. You get 20% off. They've got a box of 10 that's $9.95. They've got a fucking uh, a bottle that sits on top of your bar top or kitchen top. It's got a little squirter on top of it. Oh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Boom, boom. Uh, you can pop a couple squirts in your drink and go. Subscription of the month club, and they ship everywhere in the entire world. they got four amazing flavors. Uh, original lemon, orange, make America grape again. Uh, that last one's my jam. Uh, it goes in every liquid you could possibly imagine. Uh, go to StrikeForceEnergy.com. Grab, grab some for a stocking stuffer. Type in the promo code REVOLUTION for 20% off at StrikeForceEnergy.com. Last but not least, it's the book itself. At night she cries while he rides his steed. If you like this fucking audiobook, just grab a hard copy of, of my book and, uh, and support it. Because, uh, look, I'm, I'm, again, I was not kidding. I will probably be sued. They literally said, do not fucking ever do this again. And, and six months later, I am literally doing it again. Um, you're getting the book for free uh, on audio. Just, uh, just grab a hard copy for Christmas. Let it, let it sit on the upper deck of your toilet and uh, just enjoy your life. Here is part two of At Night She Cries While He Rides His Steed. Enjoy. Chapter 10. When you're rich, it's okay to murder people. After a week of sitting in this hellhole, one thing is certain. Jail is boring as shit. There is literally nothing to do in here. If it weren't for the bottle of laudanum in my stash and the insane amount of sex I was having, I probably would have hung myself. Exactly like the fat Mexican is trying to do in the cell next to me right now. The deputy's keys jangle as he walks up to my cell. Your trial's today, St. James. Put these on. He hands me a set of handcuffs. Mustache is coming back in real nice, boss. I say with extreme sarcasm. If I ever figure out how you did this. You should probably post a wanted sign up in town. He bristles as he unlocks my cell after I put the cuffs on. On my way past the fat Mexican cell, he screams out, Oh, thank God! He sprints over to his hole dug in the ground and pulls his pants down as fast as he can. This isn't good. The noises I hear next can only be described as what I imagine a grown elephant would sound like giving birth to triplets standing upright on an old hardwood floor. The deputy and I look at each other and then run for the front door like two robbers who just threw a lit dynamite into a safe. Except this time, we don't make it out quickly enough. The shit smell catches up with us a few steps before we hit the front door, causing us to vomit upon impact. We hit the ground and prepare for the next wave. With both of us vomiting uncontrollably over and over again now, we are forced to help each other. Through our tears, we make a silent pact not to leave the other one behind. Do I hate the law? Worse than dysentery. 
but I wouldn't wish that smell on my own worst enemy. I muster as much strength as I have left and carry the deputy outside. When I kick open the front door, I fall to my knees as I am finally able to inhale clean air again. The 30 marshals that are waiting outside to escort me to the trial immediately draw their guns, thinking I have killed the deputy. That's when the next tsunami wave of raw stink hits their faces, inducing vomiting amongst them as well. One marshal physically can't take it and puts a gun to his head, ending his own life. Somebody shut the fucking door! One of the marshals screams out. Five or six marshals finally stagger to the front door and shut it. The town doctor will later declare two of them legally blind. Also, the local schoolhouse will be evacuated and closed for the remainder of the day. The last thing I remember is hearing the Mexican's laughter echoing out of his jail cell as the marshals lead me to the courthouse. That putrid fucking smell will live in our clothes like smoke after you've been standing too close to a campfire. When they lead me into the courthouse, it is packed, buzzing with anticipation. Loretta and all my kids are seated in the front row of the gallery. Even Daniel's propped up in the corner, still on a full body cast. Seeing them makes me realize how much I've missed them. Seated in the row behind them, I see Sheila, who gives me a slight index finger wave. Next to her is a man licking his lips. God damn it, it's the gypsy woman, dressed as an old man with a fake long gray beard. I shake my head and take a seat at the defense table. Directly behind me sits Ron, holding a large sketch pad and a piece of charcoal. I turn back toward him as the jury is let in. Is that for tomorrow's paper? Yes, it will go to print tonight. Make sure to shade in my cheekbones to accentuate them if you're using a close-up. If it's a full body shot, just shade the fuck out of my crotch area, obviously. He nods his head as a fat judge in his fifties walks in, immediately shuffling in after him as the prosecutor also in his fifties. He takes a seat and winks at the marshals who turn at each other and laugh. Good luck, St. James. No one beats Prosecutor Van Buren. One of them spouts out. Van Buren? Shit. He's related to the Schlagers. The feds have brought in a ringer to take me down. At this point, though, I have no idea to what extent. The following is the exact word-for-word transcript from the court reporter of the trial. Relax. It didn't last long. Judge. All rise. Everybody stands. State of California versus St. James Street, James, on this day, August 2nd, 1853. I understand that Mr. Street James is representing himself in this trial. St. James, I am, Your Honor. Judge, do you have any previous legal experience? St. James, yes, I have, Your Honor. I successfully represented myself in Yermo, California in 1845 when I was wrongfully accused of selling teeter-totters to a group of legless children. I also represented myself in Carson, California when I was 14 years old. That time I was wrongfully accused of operating an underground tortoise fight club. Both trials resulted in not guilty verdicts, Your Honor. Judge, were they snapping turtles? St. James, no, sir, Your Honor. They were box turtles injected with chili powder, allegedly. Judge, strange. Prosecutor Clyde Van Buren out of West Virginia. Van Buren, 
Are you any relation to former President Martin Van Buren? Prosecutor. Yes, sir. He's my father. St. James. Hey, he took a shit at my house. What are the chances? Judge. Quiet, Mr. Street James. Mr. Van Buren, he is a great man. Also, quite an impressive lawyer. St. James. Objection, Your Honor. I am also a great man and an impressive lawyer, too, yet I was not recognized as such when I presented you with the legal trials I have successfully won. I want that on the record. Judge. Noted. Gentlemen, let's hear your opening remarks. Prosecutor, you have the floor. Prosecutor. Thank you, Your Honor. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this man sitting on my left is a stone-cold murderer, a killer, an assassin, a man so filled with violence and hatred that he murdered 17 and 19 brothers in the same family. One was mentally and physically retarded. Can you imagine the grief that the other 17 brothers will incur when they come out here next week to bury half their family? St. James. Jesus. How many fucking brothers do they have, man? Judge. Banging his gavel. It is not your turn to speak, Mr. Street James. Please continue, Mr. Van Buren. Prosecutor. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Street James has also murdered two marshals and caused another one to take his own life. He may have even murdered the new town sheriff, though the body has not been located. I've sequestered over 176 witnesses who saw him kill each and every one of these men. They have all agreed to testify against him. In all my years of being a lawyer, I've never seen a more open and shut case than this one. I feel confident that after you hear all the testimony, you will agree with me. Pointing at the defendant. This man should and will be hung in the middle of the street for all the wrong he has done. Thank you, Your Honor. Judge. Thank you, Mr. Van Buren. Mr. Street James, you may address the jury. St. James. Did I kill all these people? Probably. But I'm going to deny the shit out of it when the official trial gets underway. Even if I did do it, let me ask you this. What kind of family can you kill 17 to 19 members of and it only adds up to half? Judge. Bangs his gavel. Get to the point, Mr. Street James. By the way, what kind of name is Street James? St. James. Topographic, Your Honor. The point is, I have seven kids, so I can appreciate family. Pardon me? I now only have six kids. My other son is dead because the Schlager brothers dipped him in a scalding pot of melted gold and hung his statue from the top of my barn. Do you know how heavy it was just to move just so I could put him in the ground for a proper burial? No one helped me carry him. There was only one set of footprints in the sand that day. Points to the prosecutor. This fuck didn't say anything about that, did he? No, he just focused on the negative like an asshole. He stands up here in his bullshit seersucker suit and tells you how many sweet witnesses he has. You know how many witnesses I have from the events that I'm accused of? Three. Two of whom are dead, killed by the Schlagers. The last witness is my son, who the Schlager brothers shot 63 times and now resides in a body cast over there. Points to a child in a body cast who is drooling on himself. Am I supposed to apologize for having one witness who is still alive? I'll call him to the stand if you want. I'll ask him questions for weeks if you want. Points to the prosecutor. You want to drag this trial out with your witnesses? Fine. I'll drag it out with mine. 
We can take this bitch into the middle of next year. The courthouse erupts in applause. Judge. Banging his gavel. Order. Order in the court. Mr. Street James and Mr. Van Buren, can I see you in my chambers for a brief recess? St. James. Is there liquor in these chambers you speak of? Judge. Now. All three men exit and retire to the judge's chambers. End of the court transcripts. When we walk back into the judge's chambers, I immediately spot a bottle of whiskey and begin to pour myself a glass without asking. The judge unzips his robe, exposing his nude body, including his dong. He sits in a hardback chair behind his desk and lights up a cigar as he wipes the sweat off his brow, exhaling deeply. It's hotter than the devil's dick in there. (laughs) I hear that, brother. There's nothing but duck butter inside these old jeans, I say as we have a laugh. Ah, ah, what is this? What's going on here? Are we going to have a trial or what? Mr. Van Buren barks out. (laughs) I'd rather not. This really will take forever, and it's August. Let's just see if we can hammer something out. Mr. Van Buren is outraged. But he killed 22 people, including two marshals and possibly a sheriff. Those boys killed his kid and a couple of clowns who provided nothing but joy to this town. As far as the marshals, he said it was an accident, and I believe him. You said yourself you haven't located the body of the sheriff, so what do we got? Some eye-for-an-eye common man shit, which isn't worth going to trial for that long. I say we give him a day in jail for each man killed, minus the kid, and a fine. Uh, Judge, with all due respect, that's only a 21-day sentence. Prosecutor Van Buren thunders. With a fine, the judge fires back at him. Time to seal this deal. Whoopsie. I say as I cough loudly and throw the remainder of my gold from my leather pouch onto the ground. The judge laughs so hard his dong bounces up off the chair. Mr. Van Buren appears outraged. Well, I have never seen anything like this in my career. You will go down eventually, Mr. Street James. I can assure you that. Mr. Van Buren slams the door and leaves. After he storms out, the judge and I end up having eight more glasses of whiskey, just rapping about life. He then picks up a tin can connected to a piece of yarn that is hanging out of the window behind him. You, uh, want to share a prostitute? He asks me. (laughs) I thought you'd never ask. We laugh mightily and he yells into the can. Find me any prostitute off the streets, George. Where does that line go? I have no idea. I don't even know a George. (laughs) More laughter ensues, and at this point, I just assume he's drunk. Five minutes later, the ugly prostitute who blew me in the street opens up the window and crawls in. After dusting herself off, she holds up an index finger before sticking her arm back out of the window and dragging in the piece of plywood with a hole cut in it. The judge roars in delight. (laughs) Glorious! Indeed it is. I line up behind him and we proceed to get properly blown. Twenty minutes later, we exit his chambers and walk back into the court. The judge bangs his gavel and announces to the court that we have reached a plea deal. 
Once the plea is read, the entire courtroom erupts in joy and laughter. Women are crying tears of joy. Men nod their heads in respect. My kids are jumping in the air, and Daniel continues to drool. The only ones unhappy about my plea are the marshals and Loretta. I lean in to kiss her, but she moves her head out of the way. What's wrong? I'll be home in three weeks. I say to her. Jesus, Saint James. I could hear the judge moaning from his chambers. Everyone could. Do you have to throw it in my face how many women you sleep with when I'm not around? I look like a fool. You knew who I was before you married me, a rape survivor. Sometimes my past follows me, baby. You know that. But I'm a man first and foremost. You're also a father. Look at them. Look into the eyes of your children. I scan down the row of my children who look up at me with the same desperation in their eyes as when I was late for dinner. Daniel nods off and falls over to the ground, his hard body cast hitting the floor. Loretta holds her tears back as it sets in that maybe I haven't been the best father. Come on, children, let's go home. You'll see Daddy in a few weeks. She helps Daniel up, puts him in a wooden wheelchair, and rolls him out of the courtroom with my other kids in tow. Even though it's the gold rush and it's completely acceptable to sleep with whores, there's an unspoken rule about discretion. Your wife is your wife. Whores are fucking whores, and you don't bring that shit inside the home. She knows my sexual prowess is that of an untamed wildebeest, and she's not fucking stupid. Today, I made her look like an asshole, and I genuinely feel bad about that. As the marshals lead me out of the courtroom in handcuffs, I glance over Ron's shoulder and see that he has gone with a close-up sketch, which is probably the right move. My cheekbones are accentuated exactly how I like them. I nod at him and show him a sliver of respect, so he can at least try to have some semblance of a normal life. Plus, I might need him in the future for something. On my way back to jail, I notice a slew of wagons rolling into town, stocked full of gold mining supplies and crates stamped with the word "Schlager" on them in big black letters. One of the wagons stops in front of the saloon, and Manuel walks out to meet it. Prosecutor Van Buren strides over and stuffs a thick envelope of money in his hand and starts laughing in his face as he makes a throat slash sign. That's when it dawns on me that he isn't in town just for the trial. He is in town for something more. I think back to Van Buren's opening remarks in court when he said that shit about me only killing half of them and how the other half were coming to bury their brothers. He was planting the seed. Sven was right. They don't die; they multiply. A coldness washes over me as I realize that I'm going away for three weeks and I can't do anything to stop them from taking over. At least there's a gentleman's code that you don't harm another man's family while he's locked up. A solitary tumbleweed kicks up dust rolling down Main Street as I stand there, lost in thought about how I shame Loretta. My moment of reflection is soon interrupted as the front door of the jailhouse opens and the remnants of that smell hit me square in the face again. The deputy leads me back to my cell, where I see the fat Mexican up to his old tricks, sitting on the makeshift toilet while eating a can of beans. He looks up, surprised to see me. Oh, you're back already? Yeah, I'm fucking back, and I'm here for three more weeks. 
I know you ripped the seams on your cheeks, and I want you to know a man took his life because of it. Your stink ends right now for the next three weeks, and so help me God, if I even hear a fart come out of you, I will kill you. Got it? He begins sweating heavily. One week was hard enough. I don't think I can hold out for three whole weeks. The deputy takes his cuffs off me and puts me back in my cell, closing the door behind me. He hands me a sewing kit, and I look at him surprised. It's from your wife. She gave it to me in court today. Said you asked for it. I nod my head and squeeze the kit in my hand, feeling worse about my actions earlier today. God damn it, Loretta. It's the little things that women know how to get you with. Thanks, boss, I say to him. He nods at me in appreciation for saving his life earlier. You do what you need to do if his poop chute opens again. I'm indebted to you. I won't say a word whatever you decide to do. The deputy tips his hat to me, acknowledging what I did for him earlier, and I respect him for that. He recognizes I saved his life, and in return, I decide to live out my three weeks in jail without harming him. Plus, if I rub out another member of the law and get arrested for it, how am I going to pay off the judge? I blew all my last remaining chunks of gold and my mine shaft is dry. Pun intended. Chapter 11. An ironic name for a chapter when you lose all your money. When I walk out of jail and into the streets after my three-week stint is over, I look up at the sun and think, Holy shit, that thing is goddamn bright. I take my shirt off, letting the rays greet my unusually pale frame. A familiar gallop echoes through the air, and of course it is my steed trotting over to greet me with a saddlebag full of dynamite and a fresh bottle of laudanum. I miss this son of a bitch. While on the inside, five things became painstakingly evident. Number one, my wife definitely hates me. She didn't visit me one single time after I was sentenced. No food, no basket weave HJs, nothing. Number two, I am completely out of gold and I'm fucking broke. I can't even dig through my family shit anymore. Number three, the Schlager brothers have completely taken over. According to the newspapers I read in jail, this is no longer a backwoods operation. This is some well-run gangster shit. Van Buren is now running shit like a boss. He's in charge of the new set of Schlager brothers that came to town, and they are 100% business. They even wear suits and bowler hats now, so they're more easily identifiable. Number four. Never trust a gypsy woman. The disguises might have been diversion tactics just so she can have an actual dude blow me, which I think is what she wanted all along. Throughout the three weeks, I became so exhausted from her comings and goings that I couldn't tell if it was really her anymore. In fact, I'm almost positive that on one of my last days in the clink, I was filleted by a normal dude named Bobby. I can't be too sure, but this is my best guess. She finally has the best secret of all time to keep to herself. Number five. The human body can only do eight to ten days without having a bowel movement before you die. That fat Mexican didn't make it out of that cell. I'm not sure if the coroner took out the stitching or not before they buried him, but my guess is no. The bowels of hell would have opened and swallowed the earth. Rest in... Actually, fuck that guy. Riding up to my house, 
I see Loretta and the kids planting fruits and vegetables in a brand new garden, something we haven't had since we were poor. The kids all scream and run up to hug me as I hop down from my horse. I'm genuinely grateful to see them. Hold your hands out. I brought you guys back something from the joints. They clap excitedly as I pull out a set of chess pieces that I have hand-carved out of soap. My youngest sticks a bishop in his mouth and starts violently sneezing. Loretta walks over and pulls it out from under his tongue. He laughs and walks away. <laughs> He's walking now? Wow, I really missed a lot these last three weeks. He's been walking for two years. She says hastily. Oh, he's that one. Got it. What's with the garden? We're out of money. It's been up to me to feed and raise six kids while you were locked up getting blowjobs from strangers for the last month. What? Who told you that? There's all these rumors going around town that strange women and men have been crawling in and out of your cell at all hours of the day. Well, that's why they're called rumors. Because there's no room or circumstance for matters of the blindness of others' chatter. Just stop. Do you even hear yourself? You're just making up words. Look, I don't have it in me to fight with you. Dinner's almost ready. Wash up before you come inside the house. You smell like a fart in water. I smell myself as she walks into the house. Indeed, I do stink. Daniel walks out of the front door using only one crutch now. He pulls a bottle of laudanum out of his back pocket and tosses it to me. I catch it and immediately begin double-fisting with the other bottle my steed brought me. Daniel pulls his shirt up over his nose as he hobbles down the front steps of the house. I love you, Dad, but you smell like a dead seal's cock. We walk down to the river so we can catch up while I wash myself. In the water, Daniel regales me with stories that in no way, shape, or form happened. It becomes painfully clear that he's been hallucinating on laudanum for weeks. On the way back, a bald eagle swoops down in front of us and Daniel punches it in the face, knocking it dead to the ground. I stare at him in wonderment. Did you just punch a bald eagle out of the air? Yeah, it's the only way we can eat meat around here now. He says with a shrug. What do you mean? You'll see. He tucks the bald eagle into his back pocket and hobbles back up the steps of the house. I take a seat at the kitchen table with my boys and lead them in a we-want-food chance as we bang our forks and knives on the table. It was nice to be home. Until Loretta walks over with bowls of salad, placing them down in front of us one by one. Um, what the fuck is this? I ask as I throw my utensils down in disgust. It's salad. I know what it is, but where is some form of meat? We can only afford to eat what we can grow off the land, so we have to eat salads. We can't afford any chicken or livestock, hence, no meat is served. Daniel just punched a live bald eagle out of the air, cook that up. Give your mom the bald eagle. Daniel pulls it out of his pocket and slams it down on the table. Loretta's face grows red with anger. If you guys want to punch bald eagles down out of the sky, then cook them yourself. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? It means that I still believe in this country. And I don't condone killing the animal that's the symbol for American freedom. Just so we can have some meat. 
I wasn't raised that way. You were raised by a bunch of ginger bushes who sucked the starch out of every last potato they came across in Ireland. It wasn't until this little leprechaun married you and gave you the magic pot of gold so that you could have all this shit. Where's that gold now, huh? Oh, right. It's melted onto our dead son, who was murdered because of you. I could have fucking knocked a gold chip off his shoulder, but you... Don't you dare say it. I think better of it and shake my head. She stares me down before storming up to the bedroom with her salad as I sit in silence. My boys look up at me expectantly. I know I have to do something. All right, who wants to go outside with me and build a campfire to cook up some bald eagle? Everyone immediately raises their hands except Daniel, who stares off into the distance, mumbling. Dad, I killed a leprechaun while you were gone. I never told Mom. It's in the barn. I shake my head and rub my temples. I'm sure you did, buddy. Let's go start that fire. That night, my six remaining sons and I build a campfire and enjoy some fine bald eagle fresh out of the sky. Daniel keeps the beak and hangs it on a necklace with a collection of other beaks from other kills he's made. I really did miss a lot while I was gone. After putting the kids to bed, I head out to the barn to think. It's nice to curl up with my steed again and not have to listen to Loretta cry. If you think hearing a woman cry is terrible, try hearing her cry in an Irish accent. Holy shit, it's awful. With the barn door open and my head resting on my steed's belly, I stare up at the bright full moon with sadness. As delicious as it was, that tiny slice of bald eagle tonight isn't going to fill me up on the reg. I'm not eating salads every day and we can't keep eating bald eagles. Actually, maybe we can. Judging by Daniel's necklace, this isn't the first time he's done this. Why am I considering this? I need money ASAP, so I start to ponder all my options. First of all, the Schlager brothers have too much manpower. Can I overtake them and kill them all again like I did the last 17? Probably. But they'd more than likely kill my entire family in the process. Is that something I'm willing to risk? I take another sip of laudanum to silence these thoughts. That night, I toss and turn in constant fear that the gypsy woman is going to try and wake me with a blowy. I finally give up on sleep as the sun slowly begins to rise. Strapping the saddle to my steed, I notice a foul smell drifting into my horse's stall. I draw my gun and cautiously walk back to check the rest of the stalls. When I approach the last one, the smell gets stronger. I kick open the stall door and see a dead leprechaun lying face up on the hay. Holy shit! That son of a bitch actually did it! Daniel! Come outside and bury that leprechaun you killed! He fucking stinks! Okay, Dad. I hop up on my steed and we ride into town, but this time, I'm not looking for a drink and a whore to start off the day. I'm looking for a job. As I gallop through the town, I see the Schlager brothers everywhere. There are at least two of them dressed in their suits and bowler hats in almost every store along Main Street. The Schlager name is on every marquee outside as well. Schlager Brothers Mining Supplies, Schlager Brothers Fine Suits, Schlager Brothers Furniture, Schlager Brothers Wig Shop. You name it, they own it. Two Schlager Brothers suddenly drop a crate they are carrying and it explodes right in front of us. 
I pull the reins on my steed abruptly as hundreds of doorknobs roll out into the streets. Their immediate laughter makes it evident that this was done on purpose. I dismount and draw my guns, kicking a doorknob back toward them as I cock my pistols. Does this mean you want me to open you up? I'll put a doorknob straight up your fucking ass and keep turning. Break it up, boys! Screams the deputy, who has now become the sheriff. His mustache is fully grown back. He runs out into the street and blasts the street howitzer into the air just as the schlagers start going for their guns. In the process, he trips over a doorknob and falls backwards on his ass. His shotgun accidentally discharges again and he shoots the leg of one of the Schlager brothers clean off his body. Mr. Van Buren flies out from one of the shops as the legless Schlager brother rolls around on the ground in agony holding his stump. He picks up the leg and points it at me. What in the hell's going on here? Van Buren forcefully asks. The sheriff stands up. I'm sorry, Mr. Van Buren. I was trying to break up the fight when I slipped on a doorknob and blew off Jared's leg by accident. I don't even try and contain my laughter, as I say. On the plus side, you might be able to put it on one of your homemade tables in your furniture store. God damn it, Chef. We hired you to protect this town, not to turn people into sack race contestants. Van Buren says as he throws that leg down in disgust. Wait. You hired the sheriff, I ask? What is it that you're actually doing here in town, Mr. Van Buren? Uh, same as you. I'm a businessman. I heard through the grapevine that this was a good prospectus town. You wouldn't have heard that from a former president, would you, I ask? You know, I wasn't kidding when I said your father used our outhouse. Oh, I'm well aware. Your father had sex with my mother in it. That heinous act tore our family apart for years. My jaw hits the dirt. Maybe my dad was cooler than I thought. Not cool enough to warrant a longer first chapter, obviously, but good on him. At least I know where I get it from. I stare at Mr. Van Buren inquisitively. So, you're pissed because my dad fucked your mom and you came here for revenge? Now we're getting down to brass tacks. She was a first lady. Yeah, but was she a lady first? Wink. The sheriff quickly looks away and Van Buren tries to compose himself. Uh, look, St. James, we don't want any more feuding between you and the Schlagers. You notice no one came after you and your family when you were locked up, right? We're running clean businesses now, and we don't want any shenanigans. Here's a few dollars for your trouble today. He walks over and hands me $20. Sorry about the doorknobs. The shiny ones on the ground are the ones wearing the bowler hats, I ask as I take the money. <laughs> too good, Mr. Street James, too good. Van Buren says before forcing a fake laugh. <laughs> Let me get these doorknobs out of your way so that you may safely travel through. He motions for the brother with both his legs still intact to pick up the doorknobs. I feel like killing this motherfucker right here and now for giving me a shitty fake laugh, but killing a president's son would only bring down the fury. Now that I know why he's really here, I need to fucking strategize. I tip my hat and reholster my pistols, hopping back on my steed. 
Oh, and that bullshit I said about not starting off my day with a drink and a horse so I can look for a job is obviously out the fucking window now. I can read the one ads at the whorehouse while getting blown and enjoying a whiskey thanks to this newfound jack. Time to mosey on down to the saloon. Just walking in and smelling the prostitution reminds me how much I miss it. When I cozy up to the bar, I notice row after row of Goldschlager bottles stocked on the shelves. There's no other bottle of any kind of liquor in sight. It's all Goldschlager. Looking around at the few patrons scattered about, all I see are gold flakes in everyone's glasses and they're all drinking it. I whistle Manuel over. You hiding the good shit from these dirtbags? Give me a whiskey, Manuel. I can't, Street. The Schlager brothers bought my bar and their liquor is all I'm allowed to serve. Why did you sell it to them? I really didn't have much of a choice. Van Buren and the sheriff made me sign it over on account of me being an Indian and all. They said I could still work here and that they wouldn't kill me as long as I tell people I'm Mexican. Well, we've already taken almost all your land in this country, so this shouldn't be too much of a shock, I guess. Sorry, Manny. I tell you what, bring me a glass of that shit to whatever bedroom I walk into back there. I don't want any of them to see me drinking that unicorn piss in public. Manuel nods as I pick out a whore and walk back into an open bedroom. I pull down my pants and sit down in an old rocking chair inside the room before reading the paper. The whore I chose is one of my regulars, a sweet-natured girl named Claire who knows not to start straddling me immediately. Do you want me to go down on you? She politely asks. No. I just want to sit in this chair and let my junk air out for a bit while I read. Why don't you take off your clothes and crochet on the bed for a few? She strips and pulls a set of crochet hooks out of a nightstand drawer next to the bed while I scan the one ads. The only people hiring are the Schlager brothers and their various businesses. The local wagon wash is hiring, but there's no way I'm cleaning huge chunks of horse shit off people's wagons. Manuel walks in with my glass of liquor and puts it on the table next to me. When he sees what's happening, he tries to leave quickly, but I don't let him. I enjoy making people feel awkward and pretending I don't know that it's awkward for them. Maybe I do have a little gypsy in me. Manuel, do the Schlager brothers own every single business in this town now? Almost. The only one they don't own is that empty lot next to them Chinamen. What place is that? I ask as I fold my paper and tuck it underneath my scrotum. You know... The place next to where they feed dead people to their pigs to get rid of bodies for people who don't want to pay for funerals? Ah, love that place. They serve exquisite squirrel dick there on sticks while you watch the bodies being eaten. Yeah, I wouldn't know about that. I saw your Chinaman over there working the other day as I passed him on the way in. He lost a couple more teeth. That happens when they're made out of mud. Perhaps I'll stop by and pay him a visit. By the way, you want to watch me screw? Uh, you have to pay extra for that now. I need the cash. You want me to pay so I can teach you a lesson in fucking? Get the hell out of here. Manuel still doesn't make eye contact as he leaves, so I pull the paper out from between my legs and throw it at him as he walks away. I glance over at the bed where Claire is putting the finishing touches on a pair of mittens for me. The kind with the rounded ends, not the ones with the fingers. 
From under the bed, she pulls out a fully knitted pajama onesie with a barn door for the front and the back. It's monogrammed with the initials SJSJ on the front, right over the heart. I can tell she wants my approval. That looks like shit. What man would sleep in a onesie? Burn it and use the hand covers as queef mittens. What's a queef mitten? Pretty self-explanatory. It's a mitten you queef into. I'm gonna go. I'm pretty turned off by the baby gifts you just made me. Claire starts to get emotional when I walk out, so I purposely leave the door open so she can watch me walk directly into another whore's bedroom next door. I throw one down on the end table and begin having sex with the new whore in the other room against the wall, knowing full goddamn well Claire can hear us. As I bang away louder and louder, Claire screams, Please come back, St. James. I'm so sorry. Nope. Claire goes ballistic and starts slamming her hands against the wall that I'm banging against. I punch a hole through it so she can see my face as I climax with the strength of a thousand zebras. That will hopefully teach her never to knit baby clothes for a grown man again. I stick my face through the wall into her room and scream at her, You made me do this. I'm not a fucking baby. Also, the climate out here doesn't ever call for clothing like that. I thrust in a hard final set of ten, letting her know that I came a lot. When I finally finish, I cut my hands like I'm wearing mittens and double waver goodbye before pulling up my jeans and leaving. On the way out, I hear Manny call out to me. You're going to have to pay for that hole in the wall. I throw a one dollar bill over my shoulder at him and leave. After that animalistic sex, I have a hankering for squirrel dick. Plus, it would be nice to see my Chinaman again. Not because I've missed him, but mostly because he's probably still poorer than me and I need a pick-me-up in the old self-esteem department right about now. Rounding the corner of the saloon, I immediately hear the sounds of wild pigs ripping through the flesh of a dead body while a few Chinamen laugh. I tap one of them on the shoulder. Who is being eaten? <laughs> a school teacher. One of the Chinamen replies with laughter. <laughs> the Chinese are hardcore and don't give a fuck. If someone dies, they chuck the body and keep on working. It's business first, and I respect that. A frail man fights his way through the small crowd that is gathered to watch the schoolteacher get devoured. He's got 20 squirrel dye tied to an old broomstick. Dye is the proper plural when describing five or more squirrel dicks. I hold my hand up, indicating I want five squirrel dye. As the man gets closer, I see that it's my Chinaman. I fucking told you, they just keep working no matter what happens. He grins from ear to ear and I can see there are only a couple of cones left in that ice cream shop that he calls a mouth. He goes in for the one-arm hug, which I obviously avoid to keep my street cred. Plus, homeboy is fucking filthy. Good to see you, sir. He says with the type of enthusiasm people that poor should never have. Isn't it? How is the squirrel dye industry? Oh, uh, can't complain. Just trying to save up enough money to fix my father's boat to go back to China and get the rest of my family. Why's that? I heard they need people to build the whale wards. Sorry, most of my teeth are gone. You should probably just say train tracks. Uh, never mind. More important, your dad had a boat? Yeah, how you think we got here? <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. I thought you just prayed really hard then magically showed up. You guys have a mystical culture. Oh, indeed we do. 
How are things with you? Ah, a kid died, got dipped in gold. I killed a couple dozen people, went to jail, and then became poor. It's been a weird month. Oh, so sorry to hear that, he says with genuine concern. Thanks. I've been getting through it all right, thanks to this shit. I pull out a half-empty bottle of laudanum out of my back pocket and take a pull. Oh, that made of opium. My people invented it. There's tons of it over there. What do you mean? Let me buy you some squirrel dye and I'll explain. Normally, I never would eat with the help, but his laugh is genuine, something I haven't heard in a while, so I decide to break my own rules. We walk for the next hour or so, sharing squirrel dye as I pretend to care about what he talks about, which, for me, is a lot. Usually, I don't even bother to pretend at all. The Chinese are really into their families and shit, so I'm sure he's talking about them a lot. As we walk to the edge of town and along the river, he points to a small dock and I see his boat. It looks like shit now, but you can tell it might have been sweet at some point. He shows me how much work has to be done, pointing out all the trouble spot areas, which are every two feet of the boat. There's also an enormous amount of dried blood on the main deck. I don't even bother asking him whose blood it is, but he tells me anyway. Oh, that's my father's blood. A swordfish jumped up on the boat and speared him in the heart a couple times. A couple times? The swordfish jumped twice. Same one, huh? Huh. It must have really wanted to kill him. He nods his head yes, then stares out in the distance with enormous pride. I let him have this moment before asking him where I can take a shit. The squirrel dyer running through me like a class 5 rapid in the Rio Grande right about now. Probably because they have so much protein in it. Those little squirrel dye are totally worth a small amount of ass discomfort. My Chinaman leads me into a bathroom on the boat below deck. Sitting on the wooden makeshift toilet, I notice the interior of the boat is in pretty good shape. To relieve my butt pain, I grab a bottle of laudanum out of my jeans, which are now around my ankles. The rest of the money that Van Buren gave me falls out when I remove the bottle. I notice my bottle is dwindling fast and I need more. Doctors roam from town to town back then, or else I would have robbed that motherfucker by now. My eyes rapidly shift to the money on the floor and back to the bottle. Oh, my God. My Chinaman's words begin playing over and over in my mind. My people invented it. There's tons of it over there. That's when the lantern goes on. I need to start a drug cartel. Without wiping, I quickly pull up my pants and race up to the deck. If I help you fix this boat and go to China with you to get your people, could they get me a shitload of opium? <laughs> we gonna need a bigger boat. We have fields of it. I'm so fucking happy right now, I almost hug him. Obviously, I don't. Instead, I extend my hand and offer it to him to shake like he is a fellow white man. Also. For the first time since I've known him, I finally decide to ask him. By the way, what's your name? Tears start to well up in his eyes. I can tell he's been waiting for a long time for me to ask him this. He regains his composure and says, Samantha Davis. I pause for a moment, thinking I've heard him wrong. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Samantha Davis. 
When my father first came over to America to see if it would be safe for us, he snuck onto a barge and locked himself inside the first suitcase he could find. The name tag said Samantha Davis on it. Those were the first words of English my father could pronounce when he sailed over, so this name was very special to him. I smiled back at him. How about I call you Sam for short? Why? Because that's what friends do. We give each other nicknames. Today, we have become true friends. But you still work for me. Chapter 12. When one door closes, another person is probably fucking behind it. Riding back to the house at night, I have a new sense of hope. Van Buren thinks he can ruin my life? Good fucking luck. Loretta, unfortunately, does not share the same enthusiasm when I tell her I'm going to sail to China to get opium with a man whose legal name is Samantha Davis. To say she goes ballistic would be an understatement. What are me and the children going to do for money while you're off in China for God knows how long? Look, I'll probably only be gone a month, a year at the longest. I haven't really figured out their calendar yet. It's all fucking animals, so who knows? Here's $16. This should cover everything while I'm gone. She slaps me hard across the face, but I don't move one single inch. Instead, I raise my hands and gently pull her face into mine. Lou, I have to provide for this family. You said it before. I'm the fucking man and I have to figure it out. This is me figuring it out. I need you to trust me. I don't know if I can do this all by myself without you. The three weeks you were in jail were hard enough. Now you want me to go a whole month? It's probably leaning more toward the year side, but yes, you'll be fine. Look, I married you because you were a strong, unyielding woman. I know you'll run this house stern but fair while I'm gone. I kiss her mouth hole like I might never see her again. On my way out, I leave the rest of the money that Van Buren gave me on the kitchen table. Like I said before, sometimes a man has to do what the fuck a man has to do. Also, sometimes a man has to do whatever the fuck it takes to provide. Becoming a drug lord just feels right. Outside, I see a light shining down the front yard coming from the upstairs window. I look up and see the silhouette of Daniel leaned up against his crutch smoking a cigarette. He nods at me with a... You're doing the right thing, look on his face. I reach into my back pocket, grab the bottle of laudanum, and throw it up to him. This is for you, son. For the hard times. He catches the bottle and stares at the remaining contents, both of us not sure when we're going to see each other again. After about ten minutes, I finally say to him, I'm going to need you to take a swig of that bottle and throw it back down. That's the last of my stash, and I'll probably need it. He quickly takes a sip and throws the bottle back down at me. In the window next to Daniel's, I see Loretta gazing at me, crying. I tip my hat to her and hop up on my steed. Resigned to the fact that I need to do this, she nods her head and quietly closes the curtains. I ride hard and reach Samantha Davis's boat just after midnight, and wouldn't you know it, that motherfucker is still working on it. He looks up from the deck and waves at me as I arrive. When I come aboard, he hands me a block of wood with sandpaper wrapped around and asks me to join him in sanding the deck. I wave him off and start laughing. No fucking way, Sam. It's after midnight. I'm going to hit the sack, then try to catch a little shut-eye. Don't even think about waking me until about nooner, got it? Oh, of course. Sorry. 
It's okay. I'm gonna take the captain's quarters, obviously. I say as I walk down the steps to retire below. Surprisingly, there's a decent-sized bed in there. As I light my lantern, so I can watch myself jack off, I think about how many Asians were probably crammed into this very bed on their journey over. I wonder if they were afraid. I wonder if they had hopes and dreams on the long sail over to my country, just as I will have hopes and dreams on my way over to theirs. Mostly, I wonder if they were all women, what they looked like. With my pants pulled down, I reflect on this before drifting off to sleep to the sounds of wood being sanded. Double entendre and pun intended again. For the next three weeks, we work on the boat day and night. Actually, I take the noon to 1 p.m. shift while Sam works the rest of the day. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but we are a great team. As a token of my appreciation, I carve him a set of wooden dentures out of a couple of the dried, bloody boards we removed from the deck that his father died on. Even though my wood-whittling skills are terrible, anything is better than what he has left in his mouth. It will be worth hearing him talk with a lisp for the remainder of the trip. Once the boat is finished and deemed ready to sail, the only thing left to do is name it. Naming a boat is the most important thing. Sailors have often said that a good boat name will get you through rough seas if you're about to face certain death. It's not something to be taken lightly, so I decide to name the boat after Sam's father, and I paint the word twice on the back. I still can't believe that Swordfish had the tenacity to jump again. Samantha weeps as I christen the boat by smashing the now-empty bottle of laudanum against the bow. The goddamn boat turned out pretty amazing. Finally ready to sail, I put her on wheels tied to my steed and head west for the Pacific Ocean with my new best friend, Samantha Davis. He instructs me to ride to San Francisco, which apparently his people are docking in and out of as an entry point into this country. He says we'll be able to get a small crew of fobs to work with us as cheap labor on the back and forth. What's a fob? Fresh off boat. <laughs> I laugh, not knowing how super Kennedy is about racism up until this point. This camaraderie will help us in the long journey we're about to embark on. My steed halts as we hit the shoreline of the Pacific Ocean sometime around early evening the next night. As the sun is going down, Samantha and I stare at the crisp blue water in silence, taking in its beauty. I've never seen the Pacific Ocean before, even though I've lived just a little more than a hundred miles from it most of my life. It is majestic. It also looks exactly like the Atlantic Ocean, I will later find out. What a fucking sham. As we unhook the boat and push it out into the water, my steed stares at me as if to say, Take me with you. I love Asian horses. But this isn't his journey. It is mine. Plus, this boat isn't Noah's fucking ark, and I don't know how he'd survive. Although I do give it a fair amount of thoughts. Instead, I whisper into his ear, Go home and look after the kids. Take Daniel on a dynamite montage. He reluctantly nods at me and I hug him from around the neck like he is my firstborn. I really don't know what the fuck I'm getting into out here, or if I will survive, so I want him to know I love him. Our embrace is broken up by the sounds of Samantha whistling loudly, followed by a handful of cheers from Chinamen walking out of sand bunkers they have hand-dug into the beach, which, as it turns out, they are sleeping in. As they walk aboard the boat, I slap my steed on the ass, signaling him to take off. 
confident that he's going to be fine, I walk aboard the boat and immediately rip off my shirt to show that I'm in control. A handful of Chinamen led by Samantha push the boat off the sandbar out into the water. I salute them as they climb aboard and demand that they raise the sails. Due west, men. Is there another way? Samantha asks. You will not address the captain like that. I slap him hard across the face. Grab a fucking mop. He smiles and immediately starts cleaning the decks. He knows it's important for me to show the men who's in charge on the first day. I don't care how skilled these dudes are at sailing a boat across the Pacific. I'll be goddamn if I'm going to take orders from someone, especially someone of a different race. This is 18-fucking-53. The next several weeks sailing over to China go relatively smoothly. That is, if you count vomiting between your legs as you shit simultaneously in a toilet every 20 minutes as smoothly. If I'm being real, I can't recall much of the trip after day three, when the scurvy set in. The last thing I do remember is foaming at the mouth as the Chinaman held me down and cut my arm open with a knife to release the tainted oxygen from my bloodstream. The next thing I know, I wake up with a lime stuffed in my mouth and another one stuffed in my anus as Samantha stands over me shouting, Welcome to China! We're here already? I ask, half-dazed. Already? You've been in bed for three months! After removing the limes, I slowly get up out of bed and stumble over to grab a bucket of water to splash on my face. My arm is still throbbing. I look down and see a dirty rag covered in dried blood wrapped around the wound. As I run water over my face with my hands, I feel a sweet-ass lumberjack beard. I look at a small mirror that is hanging on the wall and I barely recognize the man staring back at me. Not only do I have a huge beard, but my hair has grown past my shoulders and some of it is tied in Viking braids. Who the fuck braided my hair while I was bedridden with a horrible disease? It is weird, yet somehow matriarchal. I will say this. I'm pulling off this look with ease, almost as if I was born from a long line of semen. Come on, you knew that line was coming, so you're welcome. When I walk up the steps to the bow of the boat and look out across this gloriously strange land they call China, my first thought is how beautiful it is. My second thought is, holy shit, there are a lot of people here. Thousands upon thousands of Chinese people are working in rice paddies and fishing for food, all of them with precise discipline. Probably because they know they'll be hungry an hour later. Stepping off the boat, I am immediately greeted by hundreds of them. Most of them are staring at me in awe while they touch me. I look over at Samantha, puzzled. What's happening? They have never seen an American before, he says with a lisp and a slight laughter. How do I say ladies touch first in Chinese, I ask. Oh, cool, I respond. I repeat this exact phrase back to the crowd that is gathered, and only the women start grabbing me. From then on, I was perfectly fluent in Chinese. I felt confident that this was the only phrase I needed to learn, and I turned out to be right. Samantha lets the gorgeous women take me away while he runs back to his village to get his people. He is compassionate about the long boat ride over with a bunch of dudes, and he understands that I need to have sex with a woman. Or multiple women at the same time. Whatever they're cool with over here. Spoiler alert, it turns out to be multiple. I scream out to Samantha to come find me when he gets his shit together. After what I'm about to experience that night, 
I don't care if he ever finds me. It is obvious I am destined to be here. The Asian women lift me off my feet and carry me high above their heads six miles into the town of Quan Po. Sorry? I just made that up. I can't remember the name of the town. Point to any city on a map off the eastern coast of China and pretend I'm there. Everything in Asia looks the same. As we enter the main street that goes to the center of town, people come out of their shops and businesses to view me. They are clapping, hurling fresh fish at me to eat and offering me karate lessons. Strangely, they're all dressed like former President George Washington. <laughs> Asia really has always been way behind the fashion trends. When we reach the top of the street, I notice a wooden house with steam rising from it. A painted large sign hangs underneath the faded red bamboo roof shingles. I see the letters, What does that mean? I ask. One of the women responds, Ladies, touch first. I told you that was the only phrase I needed to know. A large wooden door opens and I am hit in the face by a burst of hot steam. The women slowly lower me to my feet. As the steam dissipates, even hotter Asian women greet me, ones who haven't been working out in dirty rice paddies all day. They are all wearing beautiful silk kimonos and wooden sandals. Suddenly, I realize I'm in some sort of exotic Asian bathhouse. I have heard rumors over the years that these are traditional in the Far East, but I never believe them. When the women take off their kimonos and start undressing me, I know that it's real. They pick up buckets stuffed with loofah sponges and walk me back toward a gigantic bath. Four more nude women greet me once I hit the edge of the water. They spin me around, cross my arms, and slowly baptize me in the warm water like I am baby Jesus. There is something truly special about Asian women. They're like exotic angels, wise beyond their years, who barely speak and always clean. They really know how to take care of a man, all while possessing a high level of tolerance for shit, much more so than American women. This night, I experienced their hospitality firsthand, beyond your typical bukkake session. When I emerge from the water, I feel like I've been reborn. Mostly because one of the women is scrubbing my penis a little too hard with the loofah and it feels like I am being circumcised again. Another woman puts a pillow on the edge of the bath and lays my head back, sticking a long hose connected to a hookah in my mouth. She smiles sweetly and asks, Opium? What? You can smoke this shit too? She nods her head yes and I roar with delight. I'm gonna be rich as fuck when I get back to America. Fully relaxed, I hit the hose and inhale deeply. Holy fucking shit. On impact, I am instantly flying. This isn't the genie in a bottle that I've been sipping on back in America. This shit is as clean as Zeus's dick. My eyes roll back in my head and stay there until I cough them back forward, releasing the smoke from my lungs. To top it off, there are six different women simultaneously scrubbing every limb and orifice I have. One of them begins to ride me slowly, and although you know my stance on sex in the bathtub, this time is different. It's more sensual somehow. Probably because I'm high as shit and I don't have to care about my performance. They're the ones who gave me the drugs, so whether I last two minutes or an hour, they knew what they were getting into by sticking that hookah in my mouth.
One by one, each woman takes turns riding me like the tourist burrows at the Grand Canyon. I make love to what must be 30 or 40 women for what seems like an eternity. When I'm finally ready to orgasm, they all line up in the water and stare directly into my eyes. There's something really special about 40 beautiful Asian women waiting for you to erupt. It's a heightened sensation, like sniffing glue on the roof of a stranger's house. After achieving the climax of the century, I unleash double Dutch-style ropes across everyone's faces and chest. Yes, all 40 women. Immediately upon finishing, two girls grab my arms and pull me up out of the large community bathtub. They proceed to wipe me down with warm towels that feels like they've been resting above a fireplace for hours. Shortly thereafter, I am led down a long, narrow hallway where another door magically opens. Thousands of rare Chinese butterflies fly out of the room and down the hall. A myriad of silk pillows cover every inch of the floor. Nude women are sprawled out everywhere around another hookah in the center of the room that resembles a Chinese medusa with multiple hoses flowing out in every direction. Each one of them takes turns smoking and passing the hoses toward one another. There's none of that junky eagerness to them, probably because they know it's endless. When a hose gets passed to me, I take a deep pull, and one of the women begins pouring hot oil all over my chest. One by one, she walks around and pours oil all over everyone. Free of all inhibitions, we begin rolling around on top of each other mindlessly. Technically, what transpires over the next several hours would be classified as sex, but to call it that would cheapen it. It is a full-blown bacchanalia or a high-grade orgy to you common folk, and I am the only man involved. I can't even guess how many orgasms are had. Women ride me, they ride each other, and a couple of them even fuck a hand-carved, anatomically correct wooden statue of Buddha that rests in the corner of the room. There is no sexual judgment over here. You are free to do anything. Anything. For instance, during the second hour of this fuckfest, I start crying. Not in a bitch or an I miss my home type of way, but actual weeping like a mature man reaching the highest sexual peak he's ever known. Imagine Christopher Columbus dipping his balls in American soil for the first time. That's the type of crying I'm talking about. The unabashed feeling of reaching a new plateau and wondering if you will ever achieve something like that again. I empty my entire soul into the room, and just when I have nothing left, the women pick me up and gently carry me out. I don't think I could take any more. I have no more energy, I say, defeated. They giggle and lead me through yet another door where I'm hit with more steam. As the steam retreats, an entirely different type of oasis appears in front of me. A beautiful nude chef stands behind a hibachi grill cooking fresh shrimp, steak, chicken, and fried rice. She smiles and flips a cooked shrimp at me from across the room and I catch it in my mouth. It is the tastiest little shrimp I've ever eaten. The girls lead me to a seat at the front of the grill and pour me a glass of rice wine. They know a man doesn't like to be bothered while he's eating, so they leave. (laughs) This is the first peaceful dinner I've had in a long time. After the chef finishes cooking, she draws a smiley face on the grill in oil and then lights it on fire. I can't help but applaud. Afterwards, she leads me back into the opium den where we drink some more wine and smoke while I'm massaged again until I fall asleep. When I awaken 18 hours later, we do the exact same thing all over again. I'm addicted, not only to opium, but also to this new way of life. 
The only question that remains is, how long will this last? How many days can one man experience sexual utopia? Turn the fucking page and you'll have your answer. This is the end of the disc. The audiobook continues on the next disc. Chapter 13. After six years, I am finally ready to leave China. It turns out, six years is pretty much the max amount of time you can live in utopia and have endless orgies every day. Who knew? Also, eating grilled hibachi food every day, which is delicious and something I used to consider to be entirely possible, has ended up taking its toll on me in the form of a ridiculous sodium intake. In layman's terms, I've been ingesting more salt than a humpback whale. My blood pressure is so high that I've lost all feeling in my extremities. I try to soldier through, but when one of my baby toes falls off and it takes me nine days to notice, something has to give. Once I lose my sexual abilities, women have no use for me. They are kind enough to make a wheelchair out of bamboo and wheel me into town so I can meet up with Samantha Davis again. If he's still there. I flag down a man who's running up the street towing a rickshaw behind him. The man stops and smiles at me with big wooden teeth stained with dried blood. <laughs> Son of a bitch, it's him. <laughs> That's such a Samantha thing to do. His ability to find a job anywhere is truly remarkable. We share a chuckle and he tells me that his family is all loaded up on the boat ready to go. When I ask him if they've been on the boat for the last six years waiting for me and he says yes, I feel a tad selfish for what I've done. That guilt goes away pretty quickly when I look back at the skyline and see the bathhouse in the distance and think about all the sex I had there. I will miss this lands. Since I can't feel my legs from all the sodium, Sam lifts me into his rickshaw and runs us toward the boat into the Chinese sunsets. Watching him run at top speed makes me incredibly thirsty. So I pull off the canteen that is bouncing up and down around Sam's neck and drink all of its contents. Did you and your family gather all the opium I requested? Yes, boss. They even fully processed it, too, so we could fit more in. Excellent. Remind me to double your pay when I open up my new business back in America. So, I'll get two cents a day? I guess. You drive a hard bargain. Upon arriving at the duck, I'm almost positive that I suffer a small stroke brought on by attempting to climb the rope ladder to board the boat. After I place my swollen left foot into the second rung, a shooting pain runs down my right arm. I smell burnt hair, and I black out. To be fair, I smell burnt hair the rest of the boat ride back to America, because that's how Samantha's relatives cut their own hair, by lighting a match, then blowing and hoping for the best. Much like the journey over here, I don't remember much about the journey home. I vaguely recall Sam's relatives nursing me back to health with the opium. <laughs> that shit really does cure any ailment you have. Also, at some point during my sleep, I think someone shaves my face and all my pubic hair off, which is apparently an old Asian tradition. It wards off sickness from recurring. Or Sam's uncle shaved it and glued it to his face to fill in his own patchy beard. Either way, I'm grateful. If he wants to have a pube beard, so be it. He's his own man. Three months pass before we approach U.S. soil and I miraculously feel better than ever. My sexual confidence is sky high. I stand at the bow of the boat and take in this new America. 
A lot has changed in six years. San Francisco seems more prosperous, bustling with people. There are also a lot of dudes in fishnet stockings, which seems strange, but years later will make perfect sense. I am happy to be back in the States, but I'm missing something between my legs. My steed. Even though it has been a while, I haven't lost any stank on my sweet two-finger whistle when I summon him. Everyone stops what they are doing as the whistle echoes throughout the land. I cut my ear and wait patiently, knowing that beautiful son of a bitch will come running. Moments later, far off in the distance, I hear his hooves galloping across the amber waves of grain and through the purple mountain majesties before finally appearing in an all-out sprint down toward the docks. Watching his long, powerful strides, all I can think about is how this motherfucker symbolizes everything powerful and free about America. As he trots toward me, I step down from the bow of the boat and greet him with a long embrace. My pistols hang in their holsters around his neck. God, it feels good to holster up again. It also feels good to stick someone up and steal their carriages so my 60-person Asian crew can ride back into town. As they line up and cram themselves inside, I realize that 20 or 30 of them are women I've slept with at the bathhouse over the years. We share knowing glances, and a few of them even graze my cock out of respect. Asians are just a step above slaves during this point in America, so we get a few looks from people on the ride back to my house. Someone even screams out, What are you, yellow? I refuse to answer them because I can't tell if they're just being observational. Truthfully, I'm not concerned about what people think. After being in their country and experiencing their culture, I realize that these people are the future. If I want to have a successful business in America, I need workers that I can pay virtually nothing preying on the fact that they are just happy to be here. When our carriages come up over the countryside towards my casa, I feel a twinge of nervousness in my stomach. After all, I haven't seen my family in six years. I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about them all this time. For instance, I remember this one time when I was like, you know, it would be really nice to have someone to speak English with. And they came to mind. As we draw closer, I see my six kids doing chores out in front of the house. Physically, they are almost unrecognizable now because they have all grown into little men. Daniel, who is now visibly older, smiles at me warmly and spits out a huge stream of tobacco juice. I halt my steed at the edge of the garden which has grown tremendously. An abundance of fresh fruits and vegetables now populates the garden. When I hop down, my kids race over to greet me. My youngest son, Bourbon, actually asks who I am. At least they can all speak and understand orders now. Hey, boys. I brought you back something from the Orients. Samurai swords? Bourbon screams in excitement. No. Something better. When I pull off my cowboy hat to reveal six sets of Chinese finger traps made out of bamboo shoots, they seem a little let down. Each of them grabs one and they jam their fingers into them as they run off. Except Daniel. He just glares at me as he strokes the sides of what appears to be a mustache, then he casually picks up the last remaining finger trap out of my hat. He shakes his head in disappointment. What the fuck am I going to do with this, Dad? Put my dick in it? He says in a deeper register. Holy shit. He's really grown up. <laughs> it would probably fit you, son of a bitch. You got any milk to go with those cookie crumbs above your lip? 
<laughs> we share a laugh, and I punch him in the gooch as I put my hat back on. He doubles over on the ground and holds his crotch, trying to catch his breath. Welcome home, Pa. Loretta comes running out of the house, screaming. What's all the commotion? She stops cold in her tracks as our eyes fuck. Staring at her, all I can think is, Wow, she's gotten older. I was afraid this would happen. Don't get me wrong, she still looks good, but once that wagon goes downhill, you know that thing is going to need a lot of repairs after it crashes. Her tits are still huge, though, so I take my hat off again out of appreciation. Good to see you, Lou. You look almost as good as one can at your age. Where have you been? It's been six years, St. James. Has it? Shit. I'm sorry. I knocked over my abacus and lost track of where my beads were. Anyway, I'm home now. Thanks. I see that. Who are all these people? <laughs> these people? Come on, that's pretty racist. How about we discuss this over a nice hot bath that you draw for me? Oh, and if you want to say, welcome home, you can do that too. Welcome home, she says flatly. I do, however, notice a twinge of relief in her eyes when she says this. Another little boy runs out of the house who I don't recognize at all. Welcome home, Pa, he says. I stare blankly at him before motioning to Loretta. Who the fuck is this? Your new son. Remember the night totally fucking Mexico died? <laughs> I knew I got you pregnant. I'm the fucking best. She shakes her head and turns to walk inside as my new son runs out to pet my steed. I grab Daniel and pull him aside. Help the Chinaman unload the bricks of opium I brought back and stack them in the barn. Smoke a little if you want to test the merch. I'm going to go have sex with your mother and try to smooth everything over. Cool. He says as he walks over to greet the Asians. Loretta seems annoyed as I read the newspaper while she fills up the tub. Sensing she's nervous about being intimate, I take it upon myself to break the ice. When she goes to retrieve the last couple buckets of water, I use my newspaper and some tub water to create a massive Russian nesting doll out of paper mache over my penis. She tries to play it off like she's not amused when she comes back in. What is that, St. James? Watch. One by one, I pull off 30 individual dolls before revealing my huge erection underneath. Loretta finally cracks a smile and begins to take off her clothes. It's time to go to Pound Town. As she undresses, it dawns on me that this is the first time I haven't bathed with 30 to 40 women at the same time in six years. Even though Asian women are great, they lack in the breast department, which is something I sorely missed. I don't know who said life is all about the small things, but they're fucking liars. Nothing beats a good old-fashioned set of white women's breasts heaving like a fat man jogging. Never one to window shop, I get up from the tub and make out with Loretta, slamming her heart against the wall. We crash completely through it, falling down on the bourbon's bedroom floor, never breaking penetration. I glance over and see his hobby horse rocking back and forth from the force of our landing. Are you thinking what I'm thinking, I whisper? That we shouldn't be doing this in one of the kids' rooms? Nope. I'm thinking we should turn that hobby horse into a professional horse. What's a professional horse? One that lets you fuck on it. I lift her up and carry her over to the horse and sit down with her facing me on my lap.
With subtle precision, I begin to rock back and forth, gripping the handles on the horse to keep a smooth and constant motion. As we make love over the course of the next two hours, I occasionally look out the window and see the Asians unloading the opium into the barn with Daniel. Also, a few of the Asian chicks I've been banging over the past six years have gathered outside and are staring at me. The whole thing is very erotic, and I find myself looking directly at them as I climax, just as I did in China. Loretta holds me like a conversation, squeezing my biceps hard, her nail marks leaving fresh trails of blood. She is no doubt thinking about the new sexual agility I've acquired over the last six years. The air is so thick with the scent of sex and blood that I have to open a window after I finally pull out. Daniel, when you're done loading that opium into the barn, could you come up here and fix the wall I crashed through with your mom? Why is it still me? Because I'm still your fucking dad. Thanks. He shrugs his shoulders and throws down a brick of opium in disgust. I flip him off, double-birding him as I shut the window. Loretta stares at me with a bewildered look on her face, probably because I'm still hard. So what is your grand plan now that you have all this opium? What are you going to do with it? Smoke it. I'm also going into business with it. Do you have any of that money I gave you six years ago? Yeah. Couple of dollars left, I guess. Why? Good. I'm going to need it. I'm going into town tomorrow. Loretta follows me as I walk back into our bedroom through the giant hole in the wall. After putting on my jeans, I reach into my pocket gingerly because this fucking boner still hasn't gone down. I pat on my other pocket, and that's when it hits me. I almost forgot. I brought something back for you. Should I close my eyes? Loretta asks eagerly. No, I want you to see it. Carefully, I begin to pull a beautiful full-length silk kimono out of my jeans pocket. Seeing the happiness in her eyes when I hand it to her, I think back to Curly when he pulled that card out of his chest as he was dying. He probably wanted the same reaction I just received. Oh well, know your audience, I guess. Loretta puts on the kimono and walks over to the window. How long are they going to be here? Well, if all goes well, they should be gone by tomorrow afternoon. A few months tops, maybe four years at the most. What? Relax, they're all self-sufficient, and I've obviously instructed them never to come inside our house. Plus. I bet they could help you with that bullshit starter kit garden you got out there. That garden fed us for the entire six years you were gone. And I commend you for it. You're a good woman, and I'm going to feed your mouth forever with what I'm about to do. But Daddy had a long journey, and I need some form of meat. I'm sure Daniel has some bald eagles stashed away. Prepare me some dinner. I gotta go check on my Chinaman. I kiss her on the cheek and walk out. Later on that night, I sit down and eat a home-cooked bald eagle dinner with my family. My boys have outgrown their whiny bitch stage and they aren't crying or shitting in cloth diapers anymore. Instead, they have manners and respect. Even the new one is cool, whatever the fuck his name is. I meant what I said earlier about my wife being a good woman. It doesn't mean I'm not going to cheat on her every chance I get. I'm obviously still a man and she knows that. But... I have a newfound respect for her as I stared at her from across the table. You've done a great job with these boys the last six years, Lou. Raising these little fucks without me must have been hard. She seems genuinely touched by this. Thank you. Do you want to help me put them to bed after dinner? Not really. 
but I'll do a walk-by after they're down and fire a couple invisible six-shooters they wear as I pass. I'm gonna go have a cigarette on the porch. Daniel perks up. Can I come too, Dad? <laughs> you sure that little brush above your lip won't catch fire? Kidding. Come on out, son. A full moon lights up the Coloma sky on this beautiful night as the two of us share a smoke and catch up. I actually missed this place, I thought, as I looked out at the gravesite where I fucked a stranger on top of my dead kid's caskets. There are a lot of great memories here. So, what's been going on for the last six years? Just partying, bullshitting, the usual. I lost my virginity a few weeks back, Daniel says nonchalantly. Did you pay for it? No, it was my teacher at the schoolhouse. <laughs> I bet your grades improved. All A's. Ma's never been prouder. I pat him on the knee. That's great. That's really fucking great. How's the town? Town's good. It's really changed. You'd hardly recognize it. Schlager brothers run everything now. People dress up when they go to town. All the men wear suits. The women wear these big, poofy dresses. Get the fuck out of here. There's even a mayor now. There was an election and everything. Who's the mayor? Mr. Van Buren. <laughs> of course. I'm sure that was an honest election. That bastard is going to love me being back. How's your shooting, by the way? I'm the best there is. Been practicing every day since you left. All right, tough nuts. We'll see. You want to come into town with me tomorrow? Hell yeah. I've been got my own steed now. What? Where did you get a horse? It was the strangest thing. Mr. Paulson brought it over and left him when he was a foal. He seemed angry about it. It wasn't too long after you left. I cough up smoke and laugh. Holy shit. I've forgotten that I had let my steed fuck his gimpy horse. Classic St. James. This father-son moment is perfect until I see Samantha's uncle shitting inside our drinking bucket. He waves at me and flashes a big toothless smile. Most of his pube beard is still intact. I wave back at him and lean over to Daniel. Clean out that drinking bucket when he's done shitting, okay? Daniel rolls his eyes as I walk into the house upstairs to do a walk-by of my boys sleeping. The first two look so peaceful in their beds that checking on the rest of them seems unnecessarily boring. Instead, I blow out my lantern and dip into my bed, putting my arm around Loretta, whispering sweetly into her ear. Let's bone in the morning before I leave. Love you. The following morning, we do bone indeed, before I head out with Daniel into town. Strange riding alongside of him all grown up on his own horse. Luckily, his horse got my horse's jeans and it's a pretty decent steed. Trotting down the main road into town, I am truly taken aback by how much has changed. Daniel wasn't bullshitting. The buildings are bigger and the makeshift Schlager Brothers signs on every storefront are now professionally hand-carved, neatly hung above the shops. The population is almost doubled in size and everyone is dressed to the nines. All the men are wearing tailored suits while the women wear dresses with corsets. Daniel and I look like a couple of Mexican strawberry pickers compared to everyone else. People start ogling and pointing at us like we're the goddamn help. For the first time in my life, I feel like a lower-class citizen. Not one woman stares at my cock. Why? Because women don't stare at a poor man's cock. 
They know they can fuck a poor man anytime, but a rich man, you have to stare at his cock and let him know that you're there. I might as well have ridden into town with a crotch cut out of my jeans because these women don't even glance below my belts. If you ask me, that's the real poverty line. With my anger boiling, I instruct Daniel to quicken the pace so we can get to the deed office faster. Once we make it safely, I'm amazed by how much this place has changed as well. It's a real bank inside, and the stink is gone. People are actually conducting business in here instead of bartering for shit. Meanwhile, I'm standing here with two wadded-up dollars in my hand, looking like a beet farmer who has taken his mildly retarded son into the big city for the first time. Someone even hands Daniel a nickel on the way out like he is tiny fucking Tim. After about 20 awkward minutes of our standing here feeling out of place, a nebbish teller with glasses comes over and walks us over to his desk. He motions for us to have a seat and checks his watch as if we're taking up his precious time. Daniel nudges me annoyed. Dad, why don't you just blow a hole through the roof like the old days and tell everyone to fuck off? First of all, there are two armed sloggers working security at the exits. Second, I need to keep a low profile until I'm able to open up shop, you understand me? Yeah, I guess so. Do you want some bread, son? The teller asked Daniel with pity. What the fuck? No, he doesn't want any bread. We're here for business. I'm St. James Street, James. Oh, I know who you are. You used to run this town back in the day. The only reason I even brought you over is out of respect of who you once were. Infuriated, I lean down to Daniel and say, Remember when I said I was going to keep a low profile earlier? That just went right out the fucking window. I pull out my guns and twirl them swiftly before laying them down on the desk, pointing directly at the teller. Daniel taps his pistols as the two schlagers go for their guns. I smile calmly through clenched teeth and remind the teller who the fuck I once was. Since you already know who I am, I'm surprised you don't remember that I'm the fucking stone-cold killer who will not hesitate to rip out your eye and skull-fuck you in front of all your co-workers. I'll rape your mind so hard they'll be able to hear what you were thinking at age nine. He stares at me in shock and quickly tries to backtrack. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Let's also not forget your place in this world versus mine, shall we? You may be able to buy a fancy suit, but you'll never be able to buy courage or a set of dick and balls like these. In one swift move, I grab his hand off the desk, stand up, and jam it down the front of my jeans. His hand is holding my entire dick and balls. The whole place gasps in horror and the schlagers rush over toward me. Daniel rises up and draws his guns with lightning-fast skills, aiming them both at their heads. He really is fast as shit. And they back off. What do you feel down there? I ask the teller in front of everyone. Uh, I, I don't know, a man, he says. A man with what? Uh, a man with a real set of dick and balls? That's right. I'm a man with a real set of dick and balls. Don't anyone fucking forget it. Looking each and every person in the eye, I pull his hand out of my jeans and slam it back down on the desk. The teller quickly wipes it off on his slacks and adjusts his glasses, which have fogged up with moisture from his tears. I throw a handkerchief directly into his chest and motion for him to clean his shit up. Realizing the situation isn't going to escalate, the Schlager brothers back off and Daniel stands down. The teller tries to regain his composure. What can I do for you today, sir? He asks. 
I need to buy some property in town. Something I can build a business on. Oh, I'm afraid everything in town has been bought up by the Schlager brothers and Mayor Van Buren. He reaches into his desk and pulls out a new map containing all the property lines. I rip the monocle attached to his coat clean off and examine the map myself. This bastard isn't lying. They really have bought up everything in town. Every inch of the downtown grid and all the mines have been purchased by the Schlagers except for one plot of land with a big pig head drawn next to it. I smile to myself, remembering what Manny told me years ago. I press my index finger down on it. What is this? Why is there no name next to this property? Oh, you don't want that property. Matter of fact, no one wants this property. Why is that? Daniel asks. This is the property next to those filthy Chinamen who feed dead people to their pigs when they can't afford funerals. It's disgusting. They do serve exquisite squirrel dye, though. I flash a grin at him and ask, How much is it? Um, that's two whole dollars, sir. He says, like I probably can't afford it. I pull the two dollars out of my pocket and throw them in his face. Sold. Draw up the fucking deed. You can't be serious. Why do you want this property? Do you want to feel my dick again while I explain to you why? Or are you going to draw up the deed? I'll draw up the deed. Smart man. I pick my guns up off his desk and put them back in my holsters. Out of the corner of my eye, I notice Mayor Van Buren walk in and casually greet the townspeople milling about. As much as he pretends that he's just popping in to say hello to everyone, I know he's here to see what I'm up to. He politely tips his hat towards me as he walks over. Uh, uh, Mr. Street James, good to see you back around these parts, he says, smug as fuck. It's good to have my parts back around here again. What brings you in today? Spell the word deed backwards, and that's what the fuck I'm doing here. He nods sarcastically, then pulls out his own monocle, examining the grid. Jesus, everyone has a fucking monocle now. The teller points to the property I'm purchasing, and Mayor Van Buren raises an eyebrow curiously. He shakes his head incredulously and puts his monocle away. Uh, 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 are you crazy for buying that property? It's directly next to the Chinamen who feed dead poor people to their pigs. They do have the best squirrel dye in town, but what on earth do you hope to do with that property? To build an outhouse and fuck your mom in it. Or, I'm going to open up a business there. Haven't decided yet. Uh, a pray tell what kind of business? Leisure. I say as I stand up and light a cigarette, exhaling it in his face. I'll see you soon. I grab the deed from the teller and walk out. Daniel also gets up and smiles in his face. I can feel Van Buren eye-fucking me as we stroll out. I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of the look back over the shoulder. Instead, I keep going and cop a feel off a tit of an unsuspecting woman walking in. St. James Street James is back, motherfucker. Chapter 14 Drugs are fucking awesome and everybody wants them. Over the course of the next two months, the Chinamen work in split crews of 30 apiece. While one crew is setting up rice patties on my never-ending estate so they can feed themselves, the other 30 work under a veil of secrecy constructing my new business next to the pig shack. 
They cut down trees from my property and turn them into building supplies and melt down copper they find to make nails. I have so many working in unison that my hard costs are nothing. Curiosity begins to spread amongst the town people as to what kind of establishment I'm building. And I never say a goddamn word, which only creates more interest. I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with schmopium schmem. Since the Schlager brothers have shut down my ability to mine gold, it's time to become a hardcore drug dealer. There are only a couple ways to be rich in my time. Gold and drugs. Even being a doctor or a lawyer is more of a novelty or hobby. <laughs> Don't even think about being a dentist. If you can tie a piece of string on the back of a doorknob, congrats. You're a fucking dentist. Operating opium dens is 100% legal now. There's nothing anyone can do about it. For the Chinamen's hard work, I agree that they can all live in the den once they are finished. I also agree to give them a cut of the profits for running the place. <laughs> Don't worry. It's something like 1%. Again, these people are just grateful to live and work here, so I'm basically doing them a favor. As the building progresses in town, life on the home front has been surprisingly pleasant. Loretta is happy with the new additions to her garden. The kids are all learning karate. And I've been having sex with most of the girls that I brought back from overseas out in the patties. It is probably one of the most joyful times I've ever experienced as a married man. It's like being Mormon, but with way hotter women. And my wife doesn't know. Actually, it's nothing like being Mormon. I'm just committing adultery again. As the summer goes on, I see various Schlager brothers spying on me high above in the hills. Normally, I'd kill them and think nothing of it. This time, however, I want them to be curious about my every move. I also want them to see me having sex with these women in the fields, partly for business, but mostly because I'm into that shit. I enjoy an audience, and I like to be watched. Big fucking deal. So I wait and let them watch me fuck the entire summer. Just as the season is about to turn to autumn, Samantha and his boys ride up over the hill in a carriage behind my steed with huge smiles on their faces. I see a glint in Samantha's wooden teeth that I haven't seen before. Or maybe a termite shoot a little piece out. Either way, I know that it is time. Is Freddy boss? He says enthusiastically. Son of a bitch. Man, this feels good. I'm so proud of us that I want to throw a party tonight, which you'll obviously set up. Why don't you guys make some of that rice wine so I can get insanely drunk? Oh, we'd love to. You deserve it after how hard we've worked all these months. Tell me about it. My leadership skills are better than I give myself credit for. Now go get a jump on that wine, okay? Daddy needs to get his beak wet. Then they scurry off. I can tell they are excited because they actually show a different emotion than frozen by fear. As I walk through the rice paddies with the sun setting behind me, a cool breeze picks up, sending tingles down my body, probably indicating a change or some form of STD. I shiver a little bit, but refuse to put a shirt on. A young woman, Soon Lee, who have been bawling for close to a year, maybe longer, they really do all look alike, peeks her head out from behind the patties and politely waves at me. Mr. Street James, can we talk? She asks shyly. 
Yeah, I guess. You're kind of ruining this sunset for me, but go ahead. I'm so sorry. I just wanted to tell you that I'm pregnant. She then steps out from behind the patties, revealing her huge stomach, indicating that she's very late into her third trimester. It actually looks like she'd give birth at any second. Shh, I know you're pregnant. I've known for days. You are the father. I figured. I never pull outs. Will you be there for me and our baby? <laughs> I smile warmly at her and answer. Probably not. I'm not even really here for my own children with my real wife, so you're more than likely going to have to ride solo on this effort. Is there at least a chance? I will wait for you. Maybe someday soon. That's so nice to hear. No, you didn't let me finish. Maybe someday soon, Lee, you will meet another man who will care for you and the child. I'm just not him. Look, you're a special flower that deserves to be watered on. I gotta go. We cool? Yes. She says as she nods her head and bows to me. Also, could you grab that wheelbarrow full of broken rocks and discard them about a mile down the river? Thanks a bunch. As her nine months pregnant body struggles to lift the heavy wheelbarrow, I notice a couple more Schlager brothers on top of the hill spying on me in the distance. Since we're opening tomorrow, I decide now would be the perfect time to test the opium out on potential customers. I hop on my steed and ride in from behind, surprising them with my pistols drawn. <laughs> they damn near shit themselves going for their own guns. Don't do that, boys. I already have the jump on you. If I'd wanted you dead, I would have killed you by now. Well, what the hell do you want, then? One of them asks. To bury the hatchet. Let bygones be bygones. You killed my son, I killed half your family, but that doesn't mean we can't be friends. How about a little herbal peace offering? I pull a long Chinese pipe and a box of matches out of my pants. They look at me suspiciously as they examine the pipe. It's obvious they haven't seen anything like this before. One of them even sniffs the contents of the bowl. What is this? Some of that crazy engine shit? He asks. You mean peyote? Yeah, peyote. That shit made me wrap my entire body in leather, cut out only a mouth hole to breathe, and jump off the roof of my house. I landed pecker head down in my wife's cactus. That actually sounds like a blast, but no. The stuff I got here has been shipped in from the Orients. It's a new drug called opium, and it's the smoothest high you'll ever have. No hallucinations, and it makes you want to have sex even if you don't. That's bullshit. I never heard of it, the other slugger says. It's brand new to the States. I'm opening up a whole new whorehouse in town tomorrow that will exclusively sell it. You sure I can't interest you in a toke? They both confer with each other, then smile at me. You smoke some first to prove it's safe, one of them says. <laughs> you don't have to twist my dick to smoke this shit. I strike a match off the bottom of my boot and light the bowl. Through the flame, I can see them eyeing me cautiously as I inhale deeply and blow out huge smoke rings. I then pass the pipe to them. 
Not wanting to be pussies, they each take a hit and try to hold it in longer than I did. When they finally exhale, they immediately break into fits of laughter. I pat each of them on the back as they continue to smoke. With each puff, they become more entranced in the opium haze. One of them wiggles his fingers in front of his face. Man, I feel amazing. And you're right. I do want to have sex. Matter of fact, I might go stick my dick in that hollowed-out tree knot over there. He points to a large oak tree down by my house. Uh, dude, I got kids and shit. You can totally fuck a tree on the way back to your place if you want, though. Have a good night. I turn and hop back on my steed to ride off when one of them calls out, Hey, you got any more of that shit? (laughs) I smile to myself before turning around. I sure do. Stop by my grand opening in town tomorrow. Invite your brothers if you want. Okay, but what time specifically do you open? Because I will be there at whatever time that is. Noon. See you gentlemen tomorrow. I tip my hat and ride off, not saying another word, knowing that they are already hooked. After dinner, when Loretta is putting down the last of our children, I stop to have a cigarette with Daniel in his room. I wait outside his door until he's finished jacking off. He's 14 now, so that's pretty much all he does all day. (laughs) Like father, like son. Speaking of which, my father never let me borrow his socks after the age of 10, a trait that I've taken to heart as well. I knock on the door to make sure it is safe. Um, come in. I'm not doing anything. Daniel says hurriedly. It's your old man. Just wondering if you want to have a cigarette. I ask as I carefully open the door. Oh, you look out of breath. Should I come back? No, it's okay. I was just doing push-ups. Well, it is important to work on your core, but remember to always properly warm up before any exercise. Warming up reduces the risk of injury. He looks at me puzzled. Um, okay. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) I'm fucking with you. I know you were jacking off. You think I give a shit about warming up before exercising? Let's have a smoke, bro. I burst out laughing and punch him in the gooch before sitting down at the foot of the bed next to him. We hand-roll a couple heaters and open up the window in his room. Outside, I see hundreds of tiny lanterns lit for the celebration this evening. For the first time ever, the Chinese aren't working. Instead, they mingle around the barn smoking cigarettes and drinking rice wine. Daniel joins me at the window. It's beautiful, isn't it, Dad? That sounded gay, but you probably knew that the second it came out of your mouth, right? Yeah, that was stupid. I'm sorry. Can I come to the party tonight? With the sounds of female laughter trickling through the night air becoming more frequent, I can see the eagerness in his eyes. I lean over and put my arm on his shoulder. Not a fucking prayer, my man. Your mother would kill me. But you can watch from your window and I'll pretend you're sleeping. Okay. He says, disappointed. As I turn to walk out and leave, he stops me and asks, What's going to happen out there tonight? One can never be sure. I just hope I don't wake up covered in someone else's blood in a bathtub full of doll parts. Good night, buddy. I walk out with his lantern and quietly close the door behind me. As soon as I turn around, I run smack tits into Loretta, 
Both of our lanterns collide and hit the floor, burning down the entire house with all of us in it. Everyone perishes and there are no survivors. <laughs> Just kidding. I wanted to make sure you were still paying attention. Loretta looks up at me surprised. Is he asleep? <laughs> Fast as shit. I thought he was dead in there for a second. Good. That makes all of them. Are you going to the party? I thought I'd stop by for a drink. I want to tell them they've done a great job with everything, but I still want them to know that I'm their boss. Why? Do you want to go? I don't know. I could have a tin cup full of wine and let my hair down. If you fucking cheat on me, I'll kill you. I say angrily. What? No, I just... <laughs> I'm messing with you. You can never find a man as good as me. After you, Mrs. Street James. She smiles and takes my arm, allowing me to escort her out into the rice paddies. Daniel was right. It is beautiful seeing all these Chinese lanterns lit up and strung throughout the garden. I obviously don't say that aloud, though. As we walk arm in arm, Samantha comes running out with two cups of wine. Half of his wooden teeth are now missing, so I can confirm that termites have obviously infested the rest of his mouth. He seems really happy at the moment, and I don't want to ruin that by pointing out his teeth. We did it, both, he says with a more defined lisp. <laughs> yes, I did. Big day tomorrow. You excited to finally be able to sleep indoors? Oh, yes. My people have always dreamed of sleeping inside the place they work all day long. <laughs> I can imagine. Are you guys coming out to the barn for the special party? Oh, I don't know, Sam. Loretta nudges me. Come on, St. James. Might be fun. Uh, Lou, people are going to be smoking opium and wearing animal masks. Shit might get wild. I'll try it. I should at least know the kind of business you're getting into. I look at Sam and shrug my shoulders. Okay. Give her the pipe. I tell him. Samantha smiles and pulls a pipe out of his back pocket. By the way, Chinese people carry pipes on them at all times, which is just fucking classy. Samantha loads her up a bowl, and I instruct Lou to hold it in as I light it. She's a woman, so obviously she chokes on it and coughs out all the smoke like she's dying. Her eyes start to water and her cheeks get red, then suddenly she bursts out laughing. I take a toke of my own and we pass it around several times before walking over to the barn. Samantha flings open the barn doors and a giant plume of steam hits us in the face. I close my eyes and take it all in, inhaling deeply. Memories of my first night in China come flooding back. I know exactly what the fuck is going down in here. Once inside, I see they've set up a makeshift bathhouse with people washing each other and having sex inside all the giant horse troughs from the stables. I'm initially surprised at how much water they've taken out of the river. Then I remember they are Chinese. Never doubt their fucking efficiency and attention to detail. The only thing different from the Orient is that this time, there are men in there as well. I don't know if you've ever seen a penis on a Chinaman, but it's like looking for an acorn in a pile of autumn leaves. When you first see one, there's a lot of algebra involved. You start calculating length times width minus body size. It's hard to tell if their dicks are that tiny or if they just grow insane amounts of pubic hair. 
Truthfully, that's a question for the scholars. Loretta gasps and covers her mouth. Are you okay, I ask? Yeah, I just never expected that this went on. They seem like such friendly people. To be fair, they're all still really friendly, but even I didn't know four people could 69 at the same time. It's pretty fucking rad, but if you want, we can leave. No, I want to stay. You only live once, right? <laughs> I hope that phrase never catches on. Since we are going in, we should have a safe word. Before I can tell her my safe word is harder, two beautiful nude Asian women grab her and lead us to a trough. They take our clothes off and put us into a makeshift bath. Once we are seated, they immediately pour hot water all over us. Everyone is smoking opium and pipes are being passed from trough to trough. When a pipe is passed to us, Loretta grabs it and takes a deep pull, but this time, she doesn't choke. Instead, she French inhales slowly like she's been doing this shit for years. Instant seduction kicks in, and she moves toward me and straddles me Indian style, wrapping her legs around me. The two Asian women hop into the tub, each one taking a seat behind Loretta and me. They begin massaging us as we fuck. Notice how I didn't say make love in that last sentence? That's because whenever there are two strangers buck naked with you in a horse trough that doubles as a bathtub, you're definitely fucking at that point. In my head, I'm thinking that Loretta will immediately be freaked out by this, but instead, it's quite the opposite. This shit is going down. Eventually, we end up swapping Asian chicks. Loretta makes out with one like she's back in an Irish private school while the other one rides me. And Loretta's cool with it, too. As the hours pass, Loretta must get with ten different girls, as do I. Obviously, the Chinamen know that I am their master, so nothing happens on the other dude tip with the missus. One dude does try to suck my dick, but I politely put the kibosh on that. He got caught up in the moment, and I understand. Things become really hazy around 4 a.m. when I see two more Asian women lead my steed into the barn. They begin to wash him with giant sponges. One girl even puts a hoof in her mouth. Look, I'm into some fucked up shit, but even I have to turn away at this point. Good for him and all that, but I don't need to see it. As things take a turn for the bizarre, a blood-curdling scream rings out in the air. I can tell immediately that this is not a scream of pleasure. I run to the back of the barn following the sounds of the screams. It's not atypical for someone to die during a drug-fueled orgy. A lot of people can't handle their shit. But this time, no one is dead. Someone is about to be born. When I finally make my way to the source of the screaming, I stop in my tracks and look down at a nude woman in a trough of water mixed with blood. It is Soon Lee, and she is having my baby. One, this is the first and only time in orgy history that someone has physically gone into labor. Two, why do I still have an erection? <laughs> Fight or flight, I guess. Adrenaline does some strange shit. 
With her screaming growing persistent, she grabs the sides of the trough with her hands and props her legs up over the sides. When she spots me, she looks up and briefly smiles. I knew you would be here for me and the baby, she says through gritted teeth. Uh, yeah. I also don't want to fuck up this orgy because we got a real good thing going on right now, so let's just shoot this kid out. What do you say? She nods and begins to push. A Chinaman doctor runs over and puts a pipe in her mouth with the opium acting as an epidural. She takes an enormous rip and exhales deeply. I look down and see the baby's head peeking out. He has my sweet hair. Within what seems like seconds after the first push, she goes from crowning to the full baby shooting out into the water like a dolphin birth. The doctor then bites off the umbilical cord and raises the child high above his head. He says a bunch of shit in Chinese and everybody cheers. I well up as I look at the baby. He looks like an Asian me. Everything else feels like a dream after that. I think I see my newborn baby riding through the barn of my horse at one point, but don't quote me on that. All I know is I wake up the next morning with Loretta, back inside my house, in my own bathtub, full of doll parts and covered in someone else's blood. My Asian son's blood, to be exact. Best orgy ever. Chapter 15. It takes about one hour until I'm rich again. Remarkably, none of the Chinamen are hung over the next day. These motherfuckers are relentless. I nut up and take a Mexican shower, meaning I only brush my teeth and put on a cowboy hat, before riding out with Daniel. Loretta waves at me as we leave. There is a strange calmness to her now, as if she has been to the other side and understands it. it scares the shit out of me. Daniel spits out a huge rope of tobacco juice on the ground and hands me a huge wad of chew from his shirt pocket. I upper lip that shit and flick the reins on my steed. Saw you walk into the house last night covered in blood. What the hell happened at that party, Dad? Let's just say you have a new brother. Wait, what? I don't want to talk about it, Daniel, but it would be nice for you to learn Chinese. We ride in silence the rest of the way into the town. On Main Street, I see two Schlager brothers that I smoked out yesterday already lined up in front of my new whorehouse. It's not as fancy as all the rest of the businesses in town, obviously, but the darker quality to it really adds to the mystery. Daniel and I tie up our horses and step back into the street and take it all in. Painted on the sign above the entrance in big black letters are the words, St. James Place, Opium Den and Polite Horse. It is the first establishment in America that offers both opium and horse, so it's kind of a huge deal. As I stand there looking up at the sign, a lion's pride washes over me. Samantha asked me to stand next to Daniel for a picture to properly mark this moment in history. I tell him I want a solo shot with my steed first because I don't want people to think this is a father-son business. How would it look if I were selling horrors with my son? It's not like we're fucking blacksmiths. Sam goes under a large blanket behind a camera set up on a large wooden tripod. One, two, three. The light bulb explodes in the air when the flash goes off, and it is really fucking dangerous. 
Samantha learns that firsthand when he steps out from underneath the blanket with his head smoking and his hair almost entirely burned off his scalp. He smiles and pats out a couple small flames of scorched hair. Are you okay, Sam? Uh, yes, I think so. Good, because I'm going to need one more. I think I was breathing out on that one. I need you to catch me on the breathe in. It makes my pecs look bigger. He nods in agreement and goes back under the blanket, proceeding to count me down again. Samantha sprints out from underneath the blanket, completely engulfed in flames after the next one. He frantically runs toward the whorehouse, and I immediately kick him into a horse trough full of water so he won't light my place ablaze right before it opens. After making sure he's safely put out, I walk over to Daniel and look him square in the eyes. Daniel, you were my firstborn child. That I actually took responsibility for. So I'd like for you to be the first customer. Daniel looks at me touched. Are you serious, Pa? Yes. I obviously can't watch you fuck, though, because you're still at that awkward stage that verges on creepy. Also, you can't ever tell your mother about this, got it? He laughs like a 14-year-old at a whorehouse because he is. Catching himself being too excited, he steps back and firmly shakes my hands. Banging a whore is his last step toward becoming a man, and this is a really nice father-son moment. The nicest moment was obviously when he took 63 bullets for me, so I figure this is the least I could do to return the favor. As I walk him around the back, the two Schlager brothers who have been waiting out front start scratching their arms. Uh, is there any chance you're gonna open up early, Mr. Street James? One of them asks. I smile and point to Daniel and say, Gents, I'm going to let my boy take the first hit off that wooden dick and then let him bang out one of the whores before we open to the public. It should just be a minute. The other brother smiles. That's lovely, man. I wish my father would have done that for me. Congratulations to you and your boy. Thank you. Tell you what. When I come out, I'll let you cut the ribbon as my first real customers. How about that? It would be an honor. Walking around back, I wave at my Chinaman neighbors who are feeding dead people to their pigs. Because I've picked this exact location, not only will people not be able to sneak in through the back because of my Asian connections, but customers will also be able to devour some delicious squirrel dye on the way out. It's a win-win for everyone involved. I rap on the back door twice and a beautiful Asian woman answers in a silk kimono. She takes Daniel and me by the hands, leading us in. The inside of the den is immaculate. Samantha and the boys did an unbelievable job recreating it to look exactly like the one I was at in China. Silk pillows cover the floors surrounding a giant hookah in the middle of the room. Four more massive hookahs are set up underneath netting in each of the four corners of the joints. My own personal touch is a rice wine room in the back where you can go if you want more privacy and pay a little extra. The Asian woman sits Daniel down at the center hookah, already packed full of opium. I strike a match off the bottom of my boot and light the first honorary bowl inside my new establishments. Daniel chokes on the first hit, probably because of nerves, or due to the fact that he's smoking high-grade opium. Instead of laughing at him, I let him enjoy these last few minutes before his prostitution virginity is taken. It's a big deal when you fuck your first prosty. It's not like having sex with a normal girl. 
A normal girl, you have to play coy and see what kind of positions they'll let you try. But with a hooker, the sky's the limits. You can ask for the fairy tale. Fairy tale means anal. Have a good time, son, I say as I pat him on the back and walk out. When I walk out the front door, I notice a small crowd is now gathered. I spot a man holding a soapbox and promptly take it from him, dumping out all of his soap onto the ground before I jump on top of the box. Across the streets, Mayor Van Buren curiously peeks his head out from behind the post. He holds his monocle up to his eye, examining the proceedings. I grab a cane from an elderly gentleman who instantly falls over. Hear ye, hear ye, gentle townspeople. I am St. James Street, James. But you probably already knew that, I say as I motion down toward my cock with the cane. Today, I am here to open the first ever opium den and polite whorehouse that has ever existed in America. No longer will you have to drink left-handed liquor with gold flakes floating in it. And gone are the days of having to put up with the sass of American whores. In here, you will be treated like gentlemen on a fine oriental vacation. Plus, the girls don't speak English, so they can't say no. <laughs> All of the men gathered roar with laughter. In the front, a man with a familiar face winks at me. As I look closer, I realize it's the fucking crazy gypsy woman dressed as an older businessman, complete with a long, fake white beard. I can't shake her. A part of me doesn't want to, either. It's sick, and it will come back to haunt me. But it makes my mind fucking dance. So come on in. Morning, noon, or night, our ladies will treat you right. The first time is on me. I'll also pay for it, too. <laughs> the crowd erupts in laughter and rapturous applause. Two beautiful Asian girls in kimonos walk out holding a giant red ribbon and a pair of scissors. I ask the two Schlager brothers who've been waiting in line to cut the ribbon, and they run over like excited junkies. Samantha, one more picture, please, I implore him. He pulls himself out of the trough he is cooling off his first-degree burns in and gingerly walks over to the camera. Flash! Sam stumbles out from behind the curtain with his jeans burned almost completely off his body and falls over face down on the ground as I open the doors for business. A slew of gentlemen rush inside, including the crazy gypsy, who stops and grabs my penis as hard as she can. She whispers in my ear. Don't you fucking dare say anything about me having a lady hole. Never, I say, still respecting her secrets. She grabs her fake dick and walks inside. Mayor Van Buren is still glaring at me from across the streets, shaking his head in disgust. I tip my cowboy hat toward him and motion him over. Can I interest you in some opium and possibly a fine whore today, Mayor Van Buren? The first one is on me. Uh, no thank you. I don't participate in those kinds of establishments. Your relatives do. I say, walking over to the camera, pulling out the sheet of glass containing the photograph. I hold it up to the sunlight so he can see the image of the Schlager brothers cutting the ribbon with me in between them. Mayor Van Buren fumes. Uh, 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 well, I'll have to see if the use of opium is in the Book of Laws or not, he threatens. I can assure you that there is no law against it. Uh, we'll see about that. Good day to you, sir. 
He says as he storms off, Please fucketh off, sir. I reply as I head straight over to Ron's printing press office with my glass picture of the three of us. When I walk in, I see a man who appears to be Ron, but he looks different. This man is a little thinner and has a little more hair. I bird dog a holster around his waist with a gun in it, so I proceed with caution and quietly draw my guns. Ron? Is that you? Say something or I'll shoot your dick clean off your body. It's me! It's me! Please don't shoot my dick off my body! That's my biggest fear in life! His loose holster falls onto the floor as he runs toward me. <laughs> same old gimpy Ron. In the light, I notice he's wearing a horrible toupee that is the same color and length of my hair. He's lost a few pounds, but he's still fat. The skinny fat kind with a lot of excess skin and zero definition. Truthfully, he should have just stayed fat. Is that gun even loaded, Ron? No, he says sadly. Good. I wouldn't want you hurting yourself. Here. I need you to print this photograph of my grand opening and put it on the front page of tomorrow's paper. I have to run everything by the mayor now, St. James. It's fine. The Schlager brothers are in the picture with me cutting the ribbon. We've buried the hatchets. I hand him the glass plate and he holds it up to the light, examining it. He seems surprised to see the Schlagers and me posing together. Ron takes it and carefully walks it over to the back of the shop, afraid of dropping it. From behind, I can see that he's even tried to flare his hair out like mine. Have you been growing out your hair for the last six years, Ron? He blushes, embarrassed that I said something. Oh, you know, my wife asked me to grow it out. She likes it. You don't say. How is Sheila? She's good. Looks a lot older. You probably wouldn't recognize her, so there's no need to stop by ever again. Say hi to her for me, will you? I sure won't. Is there anything else I can do for you today? No, just run the article, I say as I walk out. I stop a couple of steps before I hit the door and turn back toward him. Oh, and Ron, if Sheila really wants you to look like me, my gun belt has two holsters on it. Shutting the door behind me, I take a few steps out into the street and see a steady stream of gentlemen walking into my new establishments. Sam runs up to me with a half full of money and a 40-cent smile. God damn it, his teeth have gotten worse. Boss, we making money hand over tits in there. I grab the hat and flip a few gold coins to him. He looks at me, puzzled. Take these and go buy yourself some new teeth. Also, get yourself a decent suit or a karate gi. Whatever the fuck you prefer to wear to greet the customers. I want you to run the place for me, and I'll be extending your cut by two percents. You've earned it. His eyes well up with tears. I don't know what to say. If you had manners, you'd say thank you. No, I don't know what to say because I am in so much pain. I can smell my own flesh cooking. Me too. Spray some cologne on it or something. I don't want you to scare any customers off. I pat him hard on the back and walk through town with a new sense of confidence. I'm rich as fuck again and it feels great. You see what happens when you use the hard work that someone else has done for you? That shit pays off. Time for daddy to get suited up. Kicking open the front doors, I strut into the Schlager Brothers suit store. 
two different brothers stare at me suspiciously when I slam two gold coins down on the counter. I'll take two of your finest, boys. I'm a 32 waist, but be prepared to let the crotch weigh out. As the sailors say, we'll release the sheets, sir, one of them says while the other pours me a glass of gold schlager. Come on, boys. You don't serve a man who orders two of your finest suits a glass of spring water. Where's the fucking whiskey? I know you got a bottle back there somewhere. The two of them look at each other for a moment, then one of them finally walks to the back and comes out with a bottle of whiskey. We laugh as if they never killed my son, and I offer them cigars. Laced with opium. It's time to get the richest people in town hooked on my new products, so I have to infiltrate the rest of the brothers. One by one, I smoke out every Schlager brother at each and every one of their businesses. I order up a shave, got some fresh meat from the butcher, buy some adult party supplies, you name it, I buy it. By the time I leave the last store, most of the brothers have already hung clothes signs on their doors and are heading over to party inside St. James Place. Game, set, match. At the end of the day, when I walk down Main Street with my new suit on, a fresh shave, and a large sack full of doorknobs, meat, and porn supplies over my shoulder, the townspeople look at me like they used to, with admiration mixed with fear. I can't even count how many women cockyays me. The six-year journey over to China was worth it. And I am back on top. When I mount my steed, I notice Daniel's horse is still tied up next to mine. <laughs> that little son of a bitch is still at the den, probably going back for thirds at this point. Good for him. I know I would've. Why am I not going to the rice wine room right now? After six years in China and four months of 60-plus Chinamen living on my property with one outhouse, I just want to go home and be with my family. <laughs> totally kidding. I really just want to head home to put the feelers out to Loretta to see if she's down with another orgy. Maybe this could become a twice-a-week thing, or where she just watches sometimes. I'm not going to push it. I'll just see where it goes. Now that I'm rich again, I can at least ask. I arrive home like jolly fucking St. Nick with a burlap sack full of gifts slung over my shoulder. Loretta and the kids greet me on the front porch, and I unload my bag of goodies for everyone. I pat my middle child on the head. I have a doorknob and a sturdy belt for you, Patrick. Dad, my name is Steve, and you look really high, he says. <laughs> I can't help but chuckle remembering the first time I challenged my father to. Well, look at you all full of shit and vinegar. Since you're such a big man now, I have one more thing for you. Reaching into the bag, I pull out half a dead cow wrapped in a bloody sheet that I got from the butcher and placed it in his arms. Patrick struggles with it and falls over sideways on the porch. He looks up at me helpless. Not so fucking big now, are you? Take that meat into the kitchen and divide it into chuck, rib, short loin, sirloin, round, shank, brisket, and flank steak. Dad, I don't know how to do any of that. Oh, I thought you wanted to go by Mr. Know-it-all Steve, who does shit on his own and has a fucking attitude about things. How's that working out, jackass? Fine, I'll go by Patrick. He says, defeated. That's better. Now go and take that meat into the kitchen and I'll slice it up like the man you're not. 
He gets up off the porch, dragging the huge piece of meat in behind him. Loretta walks over and kisses me like I'm a rich man again. There's a difference between how your wife kisses you when you have money and when you don't. This is, and I'll definitely be going down on you later, and I might even let you try your key in the back door type of kiss. <laughs> that orgy will definitely be going down now. She leans in and whispers into my ear. You got anything in that sack for me? <laughs> the same set of nuts I've had on me my whole life. I also brought you back a gift. I reach into the bag and pull out an old-school wooden drill dough, which is a dildo made out of mahogany attached to a bicycle frame consisting of only one wheel, a chain, and a set of foot pedals. If I'm being real with you, I don't even know how to fucking use it. The Schlager brothers are into some weird shit. Loretta stares at it for a moment before finally asking, Are those for your feet or mine? We can take turns. I'm starving. Let's go make some dinner. Patrick, pick up the drill dough off the porch and put it in my bedroom. It's the... Never mind. We eat like whatever the opposite of Ethiopians are. So much so that I have to unzip my jeans and pull them down a little. It is a glorious night. Loretta and I drink goblets of rice wine. My kids laugh when I can't remember any of their names. And Daniel manages to make it home midway through the meal. When he stumbles in through the front door, his eyes are bloodshot red. He smells like stale sex and wet leather, a scent I've known for more than half my life. He hands me a fresh newspaper with a photo of the Schlager brothers and me cutting the ribbon on the front page. The caption reads, Town's elite show up for grand opening. When I see it, I laugh like a schoolgirl with tuberculosis. Whoever said money can't buy you happiness was obviously really fucking poor. This is the end of the disc. The audiobook continues on the next disc. Chapter 16. People are starting to hate the Chinese. I get it. February 25th, 1857. Two years later. Blam! A big, greasy Schlager brother shoots his own brother dead in the middle of Main Street. Most of the patrons passing by don't even flinch since it's becoming a daily occurrence. Neither do I as I sit in front of St. James Place, calmly reading the newspaper. The fat Chinaman from the pig shack drags the dead body off the street and back down the alley where he throws it to his eagerly awaiting swine. Boom! A carriage crashes into another carriage at high speed right in front of me. Well, high speed for a fucking carriage. Samantha rolls out of it laughing hysterically. You'd hardly recognize him. He now wears an ill-fitting suit and has big, fake white teeth, and his burnt hairs managed to grow back in in patches. I'm surprised he didn't go with the karate gi, since I gave him a choice of either or. Here's what's been going on the last two years. Opium, son. The Great White Dick. Poppy Sinclair, the witch's orgy, the man with the twisted limp. Oh, boogie. I have everyone smoking that shit. People became zombies killing each other in the streets. I was rich as fuck, so I didn't care. Was I still smoking it? You bet I was, because I can handle my shit like a grown man. Mayor Van Buren tried in vain to pass legislation to ban opium in the year before, but I smoked up all the senators before they went in to discuss it. 
<laughs> they never even made it back out of the chambers until the next day. And by then, they had totally forgotten about the whole thing. My product got so popular, I ran out for a couple months. I had to take half my Chinaman back to my farm to grow more. My property now has opium fields as far as the eye can see, and my kids all have their own horses, riding around the fields with shotguns protecting my crops. Daniel, now 16, has grown into quite the man. It was his idea to make all the Chinamen strip buck naked before they harvest the opium every day so they won't steal any. They're only allowed to put their clothes back on at the end of their shift after they spread their butt cheeks and cough for him. That little fucker is ruthless and I love it. I pretty much let him just do whatever he wants because he's fucking awesome. Look, I know things aren't perfect in town right now. I'm not that delusional. People are getting sick of the Chinese and I get it. Now that some of them have money, they have more freedom, which is not necessarily a good thing. They suck at driving carriages. They laugh quietly to themselves in an annoying way for no reason. They're always solving math problems. I guess that's just like a hobby to them. Probably the most annoying thing, though, is that Sam won't stop taking pictures now. The other day, we were at a diner for breakfast, and he took a picture of his food. He actually ran across the street and grabbed that big-ass camera on the wooden tripod, pulled the curtain over himself, and took a picture of his fucking breakfast in the restaurant. Who does that shit? I can't say anything to him because he's still the only one who speaks Chinese and English, and I need a translator for everyone. Since he's had a little taste of power, he's also been dipping into the pale-faced lady trying to be like me. Obviously. He can't handle his shit the way I can, as evidenced by his latest carriage crash. Mayor Van Buren speedwalks across the street, his face red as hell. He points at Samantha and starts screaming. Uh, 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 God damn it, St. James! Your Chinaman destroyed my carriage! Just be grateful you weren't in it. Let's just take a step back, hold hands, and thank our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I hold out my hand sarcastically for him to take. He slaps it away. Uh, 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 don't you give me your Jesus talk, you atheist. <laughs> Look, God is creating water right now. I point to Samantha, who is now pissing in the middle of the streets. This is the second carriage of mine he's destroyed in the last week. I won't put up with it anymore. You've turned this town into a bunch of goddamn junkies. As opposed to the respectful, incestuous rednecks you brought into this town? And for what? Petty revenge over my old man numbing out your mom? Get over it. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Fuck off, Mayor. Uh, 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 I'm going to get the sheriff this time. We need to have some laws. As soon as the words come out of his mouth... We see the sheriff walking down the road, minding his own business, when a tweaked-out Schlager brother foaming at the mouth runs out of my opium den holding a loaded peacemaker. He's talking nonsensically, but this time not in an endearing redneck way. The sheriff turns, but it's too late. Blam! The Schlager brother shoots him dead before turning the gun on himself, blowing his own brains out. I stand up and applaud as Mayor Van Buren looks on in shock. The fat Chinaman barrels out into the street again and grabs each of them one by one, throwing them over each shoulder. He laughs as he passes back by us. Ah, 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 ah. Hogs eat goo today, he says with a smile. 
I stop him and grab the sheriff's badge off his shirt and pin it to my suit. It looks nice on me, like it was meant to be. Mayor Van Buren shakes his head in disgust. You wanted law? You got law. I will protect and serve fine opium to the people. Uh, you listen here, St. James. I'm going to send a telegram for my father, the former president. He'll get the marshals out here. I stand up and quick draw my gun, pressing it in his face. You get that one-term slapdick father of yours down here and all the fucking marshals you like. I own this fucking town now and there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. Isn't that right, Sam? Sam unleashes ten Chinese throwing stars into the wagon wheels of the mayor's busted-up carriage. The mayor looks at me befuddled. No, the other thing, Sam. Sam nods and pulls out a bottle of Goldschlager and smashes it against the side of the carriage. I then take a match, strike it off my sheriff's badge on my chest, and flick it on top of it. The entire carriage becomes engulfed in flames and immediately burns to the ground in a matter of seconds. Man, that was really fucking fast. I was not expecting that. That shit is strong, I note. You'll ruin a day that you ever mess with me. I point over to Sam and say, Just because he can't pronounce the word rule, there is no need to inflict your racist pronunciation on him. Uh, no, I said rule, which means to regret, forget it. Van Buren is so angry at this moment that he can't even speak. As he marches away, I walk over to his carriage to light a cigarette off a small remaining flame, and I wonder if I've taken it too far. Maybe I've pressed my luck a little. That thought quickly vanishes, and I remember looking down at my badge, thinking how cool it would be if someone blew me as the new sheriff. From behind, a man taps my shoulder. How cool would it be if someone blew you as the new sheriff? I was just... Thinking that? I know. I turn and see the gypsy woman standing behind me, dressed in the sheriff's clothes that he just died in moments ago. His fresh blood is still on the shirt. She has somehow shaved his mustache off and glued it to her face again. Pulling out her gun, she whispers, Come on, sheriff to sheriff. Let's screw. <laughs> Why that seems right, I will never know. I pull her inside St. James Place, and that's what we do. We screw hard in front of everyone. It creeps out a lot of people, and I lose a lot of customers and friends over it. That's what power does to you. It makes you think it's acceptable to fuck a woman dressed as a dude in front of other dudes. In reality, you need to keep that shit behind closed doors. Look, I really don't give a shit which way you swing. That's just a general rule of thumb in a whorehouse if there's any cosplay involved. This moment of carelessness is the beginning of the end for me. My rule, or rue, over the town has gotten too reckless. Things remain peaceful for a few days after I light the mayor's carriage on fire. <laughs> I'm an awesome sheriff and there's hardly any crime. Seriously. Everyone is so afraid of pissing me off because they don't want me to blacklist them from my opium den that there isn't one single crime committed. Also, I am so high most of the time that I'm not even sure what really constitutes a real crime. Until it happens to me.
About a week passes and I'm sitting out in front of St. James Place reciting haiku and limericks, enjoying the fine smells of squirrel dye wafting through the streets, when suddenly I hear collective screams from the townspeople. I stand up and see a man riding down Main Street toward me at breakneck speed with what appears to be a body dragging behind his horse. The man stops in front of me and flashes some sort of badge. It looks different from mine. Are you St. James Street, James? I am Sheriff Street, James, yes. Who the fuck are you? I'm Marshal Mathers of the 86th District of the United States. I served under President Van Buren. Just say you were a bottom. You don't have to say you served under him. He looks at me confused. This is a message from Mayor Van Buren. Your kid is dead. This is him. I look down at the body, but it's almost unrecognizable. At a closer glance, this could be anyone. It might not even be a human. That's how mangled it is at this point. I sit back down and continue my limericks aloud. There was an old man from Peru. Marshal Mathers becomes enraged. This is your son, man, that we killed. If that's really one of my sons, what's his name? Steve. Nope, I don't have a kid named Steve. Sorry, friends. He said you'd say that. So he told me to say Patrick. Upon hearing this, I look down closer at the body and that's when it sets in. It really is him. You motherfucker. I draw my gun and shoot him in the chest, knocking him off his horse. He hits the ground, groaning in pain, trying to reach for his gun, but he can't. I stand over him as his eyes widen, and he says, You don't shoot the messenger. I just fucking did. I unload the rest of my pistol into him. Breathing heavily and unable to speak, he bleeds out, dying in front of me. Out of my peripheral vision, I see a man on a horse riding in at the same speed. I quick draw my other gun, but it's only Samantha. He looks completely distraught when he pulls up in front of me. As he gets closer, visible tears are streaming down his face. Sam, are you crying? What the fuck, bro? Sorry, boss. They dead. All of them are dead. Yeah, I know. Apparently Steve and Patrick are the same person. No, they set a fire. Everyone from the farm is dead. My family and yours. Samantha wails, falling to his knees. Have you ever gotten so angry that you start uncontrollably shaking and piss your pants? Typically, it only happens to blind people when you fuck with their dogs. But it happens to me at this moment. I stand there, frozen, violently shaking internally. After a long, steady release of urine, I scream toward the heavens and I am finally able to concentrate. It's like I'm having an out-of-body experience, except this time, I am inside myself as I watch myself from the outside. Sorry? I think that is the exact definition of an out-of-body experience. Adrenaline kicks in and I pick up Sam by his belt loop, carrying him over to my steed. He's a fucking mess and I know he can't ride in his condition. 
I hold him tightly against my horse and ride us home. As we make our way through the forest, I can see fresh smoke billowing in the air from the grounds of my estate. Any doubts that Samantha is just really fucked up on opium and imagined both of our families burning in a fire are quickly erased. When we hit the edge of the tree line, my steed halts just in front of the slightly smoking grass where the fire is finally flamed out. As I survey the land, everything is gone. Everything. The opium fields burned up. The rice paddies nuked. My wife's garden, gonzo. My stables, smoldering ashes. The house, black char. The entire property looks like the inside of a wood-burning stove. I hop down with Samantha to see if there's any survivors. My steed stays on the hill as we walk on foot through the charred ashes of the rice paddies. All that remain are burned, nude bodies serving as mere blackened grave sites amidst the landscape. Samantha walks over to their remains trying to identify his relatives. Dental records don't exist yet. Not that they would help the Chinese, obviously. Samantha hovers over a couple bodies and begins crying again. I can tell that he wants to be alone, so I leave him there to mourn and be with his people. Walking back toward the house on my own, I pass by the stable, which is completely burned to the ground as well. The only thing I can make out is a large, black figure that is clearly Daniel's horse, which can only mean one thing. Daniel was home and probably didn't make it out alive. God damn it. The house itself is almost entirely gone. A few smoldering boards from the foundation are all that is left. I can't even make out if there are any bodies in the remains because the house is so fucking massive. It has been reduced to a giant pile of used firewood and it's clear that everyone is dead. My entire family has now left this earth. Before getting emotional, I peer over my shoulder to see if Sam is looking in my direction. When I see him curled up in the fetal position wailing in the distance, I know I'm safe. If you do one thing in this life, never let another man see you cry. Ever. Just to be cautious, I turn my head and let out one solemn tear. The only tear of sorrow I will shed in my entire life. That's right. Uno. One powerful motherfucking tear. In slow motion, that PMT rolls off my cheek, extinguishing a tiny remaining flame on one of the smoldering boards beneath my feet. Deep down, I needed that tear to escape, so it wouldn't extinguish my fire within. Instead, I used that fire and turned it into white-hot fuck-all revenge. Seeing death this close really fucks people up on the inside. But not me. I know seeing some shit like this will harden me to anything I will ever see the rest of my life. This is the exact moment where I achieve old man strength within. My quiet inner rage is interrupted when I hear Samantha screaming for me. In the distance, I can see four U.S. Marshals riding up to my property on horseback. I calmly walk toward them, knowing they will have to dismount their horses at the exact same place we did once they reached the charred grounds. 
St. James Street, James, we have a warrant for your arrest. It's from the president. One of them says in a stern voice. For what, I ask, stone-faced? Tax evasion. You did not pay the duty tax on your opium. When the fuck did that become a law? 1840, sir. Is that so? Well, as you can see, I have no more opium. Therefore, there is nothing to tax. My fields mysteriously burned down. That's a shame. I hear that stuff is real flammable. Yeah. Apparently, people are too. We lost about sixty to seventy humans in the fire as well. I'm sorry to hear that. My condolences. Anyway, I got a telegram from Mayor Van Buren that says you've been running an opium den in town for the last two years, so you're going to need to pay up on that. The federal government will sort it out with you once we extradite you back to Washington. Sounds good. My condolences to you as well, by the way. For what? On your impending deaths. Full-on hysterical blindness has kicked in, and I become the ruthless motherfucker I was born to be. I quick draw both pistols and blow all four marshals away. Standing over them, I calmly reload and fire two more rounds into each of them. Samantha stares at me as I walk over to my steed. Where are you going, boss? There's only one person in this town who has the capability to send a telegram, and I'm going to pay him a visit. I can't leave them like this. I have to bury the bodies. It's a Chinese tradition. Luckily, I believe in cremation, so I'm all set. I'll be back to get you in a couple hours. Comb through these fields and see if you can scare up a couple unburned poppies for one last opium sesh. I'm going to need it after what I'm about to do. He nods at me as I ride off, straight to fucking Ron's house. That gimpy motherfucker is the only one with a printing press capable of sending that telegram. I can't believe that son of a bitch sold me out again. Even my steed senses my anger, and this time, there's no need to dig my heels in. He's already at top speed. As I near his house, I can see Ron watering his garden, enjoying his afternoon without a care in the world. That all changes the instant he hears my horse bearing down on him as we gallop closer. His eyes fill with panic, and he throws down his water bucket, running into the house as fast as he can, locking the doors behind him. My steed doesn't even attempt to stop as we arrive at the house. Instead, he rides as close as he can to it, and I jump off, crashing through the window, tackling Ron to the ground inside his living room. He screams like the scared woman he is as I rip the gun out of his holster and begin to beat him with it. Sheila comes running out from the bedroom. She's aged well, actually. To my surprise, she's also kind of dressed up, as if she was expecting me to come over. I put Ron's gun to his head and squeeze the trigger. Click. Nothing. I knew it still wasn't loaded, but I wanted Sheila to know that Ron has been running around town holding a gun with no bullets in it. At this point, I want to strip away any last bit of dignity and manhood that Ron is holding onto. I pick him up by his toupee, ripping it off his head. He screams as he flies backward into the kitchen. Looking down at the hairpiece, I can see yarn with chunks of his own skin still in it. He grabs his bleeding scalp. What the fuck? Did you sew this into your head, Ron?
Yes, I wanted to be like me. I know everyone does. Why did you send the fucking telegram, Ron? My entire family is dead. I draw both my guns. Not your entire family. An unfamiliar voice says behind me. I quickly turn around and see an eight-year-old boy who looks exactly like me standing by the stairs. Sheila smiles and puts her arm around him. I'm completely dumbfounded and at a loss for words at this moment. This is your son, Saint James Street James Jr. I don't know what's more confusing: the fact that I have a son I've never met, or the fact that you named him entirely after me and made Ron raise him. That's why I sent the telegram, Saint James. Do you know how hard it is raising a son that looks exactly like the man your wife slept with? Shut the fuck up, Ron. It's not as hard as losing your entire family in a house fire, so don't even give me that bullshit. On the one hand, I really want to kill Ron. On the other, I'm not going to raise the goddamn kid, and it would be more painful if Ron has to do it the rest of his life. Having that constant reminder every single day will be mentally debilitating, but Ron still needs to pay for what he did. I take out a cigarette and hand it to the young me. Here, go take Ron's horse down by the river and have a smoke. Come back in a half hour. Okay, Dad. He says with a smile as he scampers outside. Did you hear that, Ron? He called me Dad. That's a feeling that you never deserve to have. Stand up and pull your pants down. He looks up at me confused. What? Pull down your fucking pants, Ron. He puts up his hands, pleading with me to stop. Saint James, please. I cock both my pistols and say, "Do it now." Okay, okay. He says as he slowly pulls his pants down around his ankles. Underwear too, Ron. Oh no! Please don't do this, please. I'm sure that's what my wife and kids said. Pull them down. Ron starts sobbing uncontrollably as he begins to tug on his underwear, pulling them down past his knees. I walk over to Sheila, grab the back of her head, and kiss her like she's the last woman on earth as Ron watches. Satisfied that I have delivered the most passionate kiss she will ever receive in her entire life. I turn and shoot Ron's dick clean off his body. It hits the floor with the sound of a wet pickle escaping a jar. His scream is delayed five seconds, obviously from the shock he's in. Once his brain registers what has just occurred, he falls to his knees in agonizing pain, screaming and holding his crotch. I put my gun back in my holster and walk toward the door, stopping in the door frame to turn back once more to Sheila. Use Ron as an example of who you shouldn't raise our son to be like Sheila. Sheila wipes away her tears and shakes her head. She says, "I will." Where are you going? I don't know. Maybe to Europe to paint or write poetry for a few years. Really? No. I'm gonna kill every last motherfucker who did this to my family. Make a tourniquet and get the stepdad to a doctor. Oh, and Ron, you're not a starfish, so that thing isn't growing back.
Know that this happened to you because of the decisions you made to be a bitch in this life. Night has fallen on the ride back over to my property. When I arrive, I can see Samantha down by the river lighting paper Chinese lanterns. One for every family member that he lost. One by one, he slowly releases them into the water, wistfully watching them float away. Tears roll down his face as he stands there motionless. I notice he has saved seven lanterns for me. Even though I'm not really into that shit, the jester is appreciated, so I join him and begin to light them anyway and release them downstream as well. Just as I'm about to light the last one, a foot suddenly stomps down on it, smashing it to pieces. No need to be lighting that last one, a gravelly voice says. I draw my guns up and look. It's Daniel. He's burned to shit, but he's still alive. This motherfucker will not die. I stand up and hug him as hard as I can, and he screams in pain. Dad, I'm covered in third-degree burns. Stop! Sorry, I just... It's amazing that you're still alive. You really won't die. It's truly remarkable. Fuck you, man. I need to go sit in the river for an hour. He takes off the remainder of his burnt clothes and heads out into the water. My heart is filled with joy and relief as I watch the smoke rising off of him as he wades out into the river. I remember staring at his innocent face, thinking to myself, Sweet Jesus, how are three men going to make it back into town on one horse? Would it be rude to ask Sam to walk? In the end, I decide it won't. It's only six miles, and it would probably give him time to think. Chapter 17. Time to kill everyone in sight. Relax. They deserve it. There comes a time in every man's life where he has a breaking point. A time where mentally, you just can't take it anymore. Something snaps inside your soul. For me... That time comes when I step into my opium den later that night and see my prize hookah busted to shit. When I see it shattered in the middle of the room, I really lose it. I fall to the ground, holding its remains. It truly feels as if I've just lost yet another family member. Maybe even a little worse. My voice starts to shake, but I manage to get out the words. Who did this? Marshals and Mayo Van Buren. One of my prize Asian whores answers. Does anyone have anything to get high with? All my opium fields got burned down. Samantha's old, creepy uncle hobbles forward. His pew beard that he glued to his face is somehow still mostly intact. He hikes up his robe, revealing a wooden leg. Without hesitation, he rips off the leg and unscrews the back of it by the ankle. A hush of silence falls over the room, and when a strand of hair falls off his face, you can hear that pube drop. He opens up a secret compartment inside the leg, revealing an old opium pipe stashed away as if it were a rare violin inside a case. It has a long porcelain stem with floral and bird motifs hand-painted on it. Every Asian man bows. Daniel removes his hat. Samantha kneels down. Every whore in the room disrobes and gets on all fours. 
To say this pipe is simply beautiful does not do it justice. No. This pipe is majestic. It is the most perfect thing I have ever held in my hands besides my own dick. Holding something like this truly happens only once in a lifetime. He puts the pipe in my mouth and forcefully strikes his wooden leg on the floor, creating a small flame with his peg leg. Wood on wood. Old school shit. He lights my bowl with the wooden toe section, and I inhale the purest, cleanest hit of Lacmera Papaveras ever imaginable. Yeah, the shit is so good I have to say it in Latin. Right as I'm about to exhale, the front doors suddenly fly open. I quick draw my guns and turn to see Ron, now ghastly pale and shivering. He's standing there with his toupee half-heartedly glued back onto his head and blood covering the front of his jeans where his crotch is. I notice him clutching a piece of paper in his hand. Jesus, Ron, I told Sheila to put a tourniquet on that thing. I cut it so back on. Doc says I will never achieve a full erection, but I might be able to get it to go from 6 to 8.45 someday. He says with hope. That's great, Ron. What the fuck do you want? Kind of in the middle of something here. I got a telegram that's supposed to go to Mayor Van Buren. It's from the U.S. Marshal's office. They're sending a hundred marshals here to get you tonight, dead or alive. Why are you telling me this? I feel bad for being a gimp all these years. You did what any real man would do in the situations I left your wife and kids in repeatedly. And I just want to say I'm sorry. Ron folds his hands and looks down at the floor, still not wanting to make direct eye contact with me. And I'm sorry for blasting your dick off. That was a level I was not expecting to go to, but it happens. I sincerely do hope those stitches take and you're able to get it to 845 again one day. Now get the hell out of here and take care of my kid who looks exactly like me, will you? I finally smile at Ron for the first time ever. I will. And don't go let him come looking for me one day. Okay. He says as he forces a smile and limps out. The entire room stares at me in silence as I finally exhale that hit I took before Ron came in. As I look at all those Asian faces staring back at me, everything becomes so clear. My rage quiets within and I am able to control it. In this moment of clarity, I realize that these beautiful people have been through enough. My war should not become their war. Samantha, take your people and get out of town. I don't want to put you and your family at further risk. Samantha looks at me, touched. No, boss. I battle with you. We've been through too much together. You're the reason I have teeth. I know. But you need to get the rest of your family out of here safely. Daniel will take you. Daniel throws his hands up. What? Dad, no way. I'm staying here with you. Daniel? You've almost died twice. You're the only one I have left. I'm not going to lose you for what I think will be a third time. I can't take that again. But Dad, that's too many marshals for you to take on. You need me. What I need is for you to take Samantha and his family out of here. Head as far east as you possibly can. I'll find you guys. Daniel hangs his head before muttering, Okay. His eyes well up and I motion him over and hug him. 
Just as we break the embrace, I say to him forcefully, You have to go, right now. He nods, knowing that it's for the best. I walk them out and help Sam squeeze his 30 remaining family members into the back of a small covered wagon. He pulls down the cover and attempts to smile, knowing this is it. Our friendship is at another crossroads. We shake hands as he climbs up front with Daniel. There's still room in the wagon, he says. I shake my head as I look inside and see Sam's relatives piled on top of each other three deep. No, I have to stay and fight or else they'll be chasing me forever. Plus, this looks really uncomfortable. Okay. By the way, there's a cellar door underneath the floorboards. It will buy you more time if they burn the place down, Sam says. Then what? Uh, then they'll probably shoot you after that. But it's better than burning to death. No offense, Daniel. Daniel lights a cigarette off his own skin. None taken, asshole. Thanks. I'll see you guys soon. I hope. He whips the reins on a horse that is definitely not mine. I love my family and friends, but no one is taking my fucking steed. Daniel smiles and waves goodbye with a hand-sewn queef mitten now on his hand. <laughs> that SOB bang one of my horse? Awesome, I think to myself. What a championship exit. God damn it, I love that kid. When I walk back inside, I notice the front door is slightly cracked open. I draw my pistols and slowly approach the front of the opium den. I hear a floorboard creak as I peer out from behind a large wooden beam. The coast seems clear, so I walk out to the center of the den when out of nowhere a marshal jumps down off a beam in the ceiling and shoots me in the shoulder. I fall to the ground hard. St. James Street, James, you're wanted for murder. You killed my... Before he can finish this sentence, I roll on my back and unload both my pistols into his body. He falls to the floor, gasping for breath. I slowly get up and walk over to the sprawled-out, bleeding body. Up close, I realize it's not a marshal at all. It's the fucking gypsy woman. Her eyes widen as she says, You killed my pussy. Why did you do this to me? This is how it's supposed to end. Find another man for me. And with that last and final statement, she passes, still staring straight at me like a fucking psychopath. I kick her in the ribs to make sure she's really fucking dead. She's gone for good, but I can't have her staring at me like this. I try to close her eyes by hand, but they still won't go down. Digging into my pockets, I pull out a couple loose nickels and place them over her eyelids. It does no good. They pop right back open. Finally, I just roll her over onto her stomach so she's face down. I rip down a silk curtain outside the rice wine room and wrap it around the flesh hole in my shoulder. My steed neighs loudly out front and I suddenly hear the sounds of hooves sprinting outside approaching the den. I quickly run out the front door to let him in before slamming it shut. Through the window I can see a hundred marshals pull up on horseback. Some of them are holding torches, others shotguns, and one of them even has two rake heads tied to his arms with yarn. I'm at a loss for that last dude. Mayor Van Buren walks out and stands next to them with a huge smile on his face. Uh, uh, St. James Street James, we got a warrant for your arrest. 
You can either come out peacefully or we can burn the place down. It's up to you. Let me think it over. You're lucky we're even giving you the option. Your wife and kids didn't even know it was coming. <laughs> I'm going to kill you in the most fucked up way I can possibly think of, Van Buren. I grab the body of the gypsy and pull her cowboy hat down over her face, dragging her over to the front door. With my leg, I pull the door open and use my free arm to put my gun to her head. Every single marshal has their guns trained at me. The one dude with the rake heads tied to his arms just spins in a circle, further confusing me. You burn this place down, I kill this marshal first. You understand me? The gypsy's creepy eyes are still open as I cock the gun. The marshals hold their fire, trying to figure out who it is. Satisfied that I've given them just enough of a glance to keep them at bay, I quickly walk back in and slam the door behind me. Mayor Van Buren huddles up with a couple of the marshals and they have a small conference. After a few moments, he shakes his head and looks back toward me. Uh, all right. What do you want for the marshals, St. James? I want to see my son one last time. Dig him up and bring him here. Mayor Van Buren and the rest of the marshals laugh. <laughs> Which one? The one your boys dipped in gold. Totally fucking Mexico. You bring him here and I'll come out peacefully. I want to see my boy. Mayor Van Buren takes a moment and confers with the marshals. They all nod their head in unison. Uh, you got a deal. Deal. I say as I quickly pull the silk curtain shut to cover the window. I know goddamn well they won't be able to lift him and it will buy me some time. Unless they figure out that the gypsy isn't one of theirs. I walk to the back of the den to cover those windows as well and I see that there are a few marshals in the alley. Maybe ten or so. I make a blowjob motion toward them before slamming the curtain shut. Knowing that my time is fleeting... I drop down to the floor on all fours and start tossing the throw pillows, searching for the mystery door. I slide my hands across the floor a few minutes before finally stumbling upon something. Cautiously, I place my hand over the door, examining it. I lean down and hear whispering coming from below, so I put my ear on top of the door. It sounds like people laughing. Maybe Samantha forgot some of his relatives. As I pull open the cellar door and walk down a creaky set of stairs, a hush falls over the room. There's barely any light except for the tiny flames underneath a small cauldron that's lit in the middle of the basements. When I hit the last stair, I see about 15 Native Americans standing there in loincloths, aiming bows and arrows at me. A large white buffalo is laying on the ground next to them. I hold up my hands and squint, trying to make out their faces. Stop right there, white man! An Indian voice says, I don't mean to bother you. I own the whorehouse upstairs, I say as I make a jack-off gesture. Shit, St. James, we almost scalped your ass. Put the bows and arrows down, boys. The other Indians oblige and put down their bows and arrows. It's Manuel. Thank Christ. We embrace in a long hug. I can't tell you how relieved I am to see this motherfucker right now. Look who's pretending to be Indian, you son of a bitch. By the way, you look terrible in a loincloth. <laughs> Fuck you, he says as he laughs. No lie, 
He really does look awful in a loincloth. He's super soft and out of shape, not like the ripped Indians you see in the old black and white drawings and school books. Realizing his new dong is pressed against my leg, I break out into a weird Indian handshake that I don't know. What's up with the white buffalo? Oh, it has pigment disease. Don't worry. There's not like a hidden Indian meaning to it or anything. As the smoke starts to clear, I can see the eldest Indian stirring something in the cauldron with an old wooden boat oar. What the fuck are you guys doing down here? Samantha lets us hide out in here and make ayahuasca during the day. The marshals want all the Indians dead in this area, or moved, as white people conveniently call it. We can only go out in a group at night when it's dark enough that we can pass for Mexicans. Still playing that Mexican card, huh? Well, if it's any consolation, they want me dead right now, too. There's a hundred of them outside surrounding the place. Wait! You have a hundred marshals out there waiting for you? Like, right now? Yeah. I even got a fake hostage upstairs, which will probably buy me another hour or so. That is, until they figure out it's not really one of them and they burn this place to the ground. You want to pour me a bowl of that shit? Asshole! That means we can't get out of here either. If they set this place on fire, we burn with you. Yeah, that seems to be the sitch. Can you pour me a bowl? I hate saying things twice. God damn it, St. James. This is some serious shit. Manny shakes his head and picks up a hollowed-out armadillo shell. He dips it inside the cauldron and hands me a bowl of ayahuasca tea as I join the circle with the rest of the Indians. We all look at one another and drink in unison. As soon as the bitter tea hits my throat, I can feel it slowly racing through my veins. The Indians feel it as well and stare at each other intensely. I look over at Manuel who pours a shellful into the buffalo's mouth. Is that thing going to be cool on that? I ask. Are we? He retorts as both of us laugh. This special bond between a white man and a magical Indian is interrupted by a marshal screaming outside. St. James! We got your boy! You have two minutes to come out with your hands up or we burn the place down! What the fuck? This can't be. It's only been like an hour or so. I run up the stairs and peek out the curtain. The marshals pry open a coffin and begin to pull the top of his gold statue out, trying to stand it upright. Shit, man. These marshals are playing for keeps. I walk back down the stairs and salute everyone farewell. This is the end of the line, boys. I appreciate your hospitality. No, says the eldest Indian stirring the cauldron. Everyone turns and looks at him. I am the acting chief of this tribe. And if you burn, we burn with you. He holds up his hand and sticks it into the flames underneath the cauldron, palm side down. That motherfucker never breaks eye contact with me as his skin melts. I'm not going to do that shit, but it was awesome to see someone else do it. With the smell of burning flesh resonating through the air, he smiles and says, Are you ready to fly with the sea of wingless birds? Without hesitation, or knowing what the fuck he's talking about, I reply, I am. He closes his eyes and begins chanting in a deep, low, resonating voice. The other Indians close their eyes and join in as well. 
The old chief then pulls out a battered wooden box from behind him. He carefully lifts the top, revealing twenty live rattlesnakes. He motions for me to grab a snake with my bare hands. I'm so fucking high on ayahuasca that I don't even flinch as I stick my hand in. Now, slowly apply pressure to the neck of the snake with four fingers and ease your thumb upward. When he exposes his fangs, squeeze your thumb down on his head, closing his mouth gently. I do exactly as told. The rattlesnake shakes his tail wildly as milky white venom begins to slowly seep from his mouth. Holy shit, this is intense. I want each of you to turn to the man next to you and draw a spirit animal on each other's face in rattlesnake venom, the chief says in a stern voice. Manuel turns to me and I close my eyes. He begins rubbing the closed mouth of the rattlesnake against my face in a controlled manner. I can feel the warm venom slowly sinking into my cheeks. It burns like a motherfucker with the intensity that makes you want to kill someone. When he finishes, I open my eyes and do the same to him. The old chief smiles and says, On the count of three, I want you to tell the other person what you drew. One, two, three. A bald eagle, Manuel and I say in unison. The chief nods and says, You are ready. Let's go kill some white people. Suddenly we hear the sounds of Goldschlager bottles crashing through the windows of my opium den, followed by the unmistakable smell of smoke. The den immediately goes up in flames. I hear my steed upstairs neighing loudly and I know it's go time. The old chief takes our rattlesnakes and puts them back in the box. With my face burning, I instinctively take my shirt off to become one of the Indians. One by one, we head up the stairs as the flames grow higher. I hop up on my steed and look down at Manuel, who is now riding the white buffalo up from the cellar. The Indians fall in behind him, pulling out hatchets attached to their calves. They give the go-ahead signal to Manuel, who slaps the buffalo hard on the ass. It takes off like a rocket, crashing through the front door and out into the street. The marshals are paralyzed with fear as it knocks a few of them down off their horses. That guy with the rakes tied to his arms tries to spin into the animal, swinging at it wildly. Obviously, the buffalo tramples him to death in brutal fashion. That really is the first guy I wanted to see die just because of his own stupidity. In a state of bewilderment, the other marshals pivot hard on their horses in mass confusion, unable to get a clean shot off at him. An albino buffalo sighting is a rarity anyway, let alone one busting out of a fake hostage situation after you set an opium den on fire. I whip the reins of my steed, and he takes off running through the whorehouse at full speed, shattering the window out onto main streets. The Indians immediately sprint out behind us and start throwing hatchets at the marshals. There's so much chaos going on that the marshals fumble with their weapons, not knowing where to shoot. I draw my guns and start blasting the shit out of people. One by one, the marshals begin to hit the ground, splattered in blood, dead as fuck. Amidst the confusion, I hear a loud war cry from the roof, where I see the old chief standing. 
He throws the wooden box full of rattlesnakes high into the air toward the marshals. The snakes spill out everywhere when the box crashes to the ground, spooking the marshals' horses, causing them to buck them off. Some of their horses fall on top of them on the ground, crushing their legs. The rest of the Indians pounce and begin scalping them one by one. Blood flies everywhere. It's graphic as shit, even more so when you're on drugs. Indians don't give a fuck either. Real talk? They would have killed all of us white men if it weren't for the invention of muskets. Muskets changed the game. We had them and they didn't. Simple as that. Watching them kill right now, I realize and appreciate how hardcore these motherfuckers are. Plus, the ayahuasca heightens your awareness and you're really able to hone in and take souls. I can't recommend it enough when you're in a kill or be killed situation. With the sounds of horses approaching from behind, I spin my steed around in their direction. The marshals who were stationed out back suddenly come flying around the corner on horses with their guns drawn, aimed square at me. I fire my pistols, but they're out of bullets. As I quickly try and reload, I realize it's too late. They have the drop on me. All ten marshals smile. Goodbye, St. James Street James, one of them says. I'm about to go totally fucking Mexico. Voice screams out. The marshals turn toward the voice where the statue of totally fucking Mexico has come to life. But it's not him. It's Daniel, who has painted himself gold. The realism is frightening, and Daniel exploits the stunned marshals, who hesitate to fire. He pulls out his pistols and begins shooting at the marshals as he runs out in front of me. I scream out to him. Daniel, no! He manages to take out four or five marshals before they regain their senses. All at once, they fire in unison, peppering him with hot lead. After he's hit with what seems like more than a hundred rounds, I see massive amounts of blood pouring out of his body. With the few bullets I was able to jam into my guns, I'm able to kill the remaining marshals. I quickly dismount my steed and run over to Daniel as his near-lifeless body falls to the ground. Daniel, why did you do this? I just wanted to prove myself to you, Dad. You've proven yourself like three times, more than any father could ask of his son. Also, that paint job is unfucking believable You look just like him. He would be proud. Thanks, Dad. Out of curiosity, how did you know to run home and do this? I'm a street, James. We think alike. He says as he tries to smile and violently coughs up blood. This probably isn't the time, but this is the last thing I would have thought to do. Yeah, but you probably wouldn't have thought about doing this either. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out the queef mitten, wrapping it around my hand. I smile and begin to well up. I think I see Ma. Run to her, Daniel. I say, realizing there's nothing I can do. He's bleeding too much and he's about to die. As a father, I comfort him as much as I can as he nods his head gently and closes his eyes. I hold him in my arms and look up toward the sky as the Indians pounce on the dead marshals and scalp the shit out of him, 
When they finish, the Indians walk over and rub their fingers in Daniel's blood and wipe them underneath their eyes out of respect for this fallen warrior. As I sit there with his head in my lap, I hear a set of saloon doors swing open behind me from across the street. Before I can turn to see who it is, I'm shot in the other shoulder. What are the fucking chances? I look back and see Mayor Van Buren firing a small derringer at me like a fucking woman. Glancing down at my shoulder, I'm more pissed off than anything. Of course this little motherfucker has a derringer. With fear in his voice, he screams out at me. Uh, 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 fuck you, St. James. I'll kill you like I did the rest of your family. He empties the last two shots of his tiny little gun at me, missing wildly. Running like a scorned woman, he jumps on his horse and rides off. When I stand up and cock my pistols, taking aim at him, a hand reaches over and grabs my arm firmly. It's old man strength. I don't even have to look over to know that it's the chief. Completely covered in Marshall's blood from neck to nuts, he looks me directly in the eyes and says, No gun. When a man takes another man's entire family, that man needs to feel his life being taken from him by the hands of the man he is taken from. Thank you, wise chief. The word man was used a lot in that last sentence, but I understood it. He gives me two small hatchets, and in return, I hand him my guns. Trust your instincts, and the spirit world will guide you into a cloud through time and space, which will in turn lead you to the other world, where you will meet a man with no face who cannot eat. I hate to cut you off, but the mayor is getting away. And I have no idea what the fuck you're saying right now. I should go. The old chief smiles. Forgive me. The ayahuasca has just taken a hold of me. I have said too much weird shit. The fact that it's now just kicking in is amazing. I'm astonished at the chief's tolerance for hallucinogens. He takes my hands and squeezes them around the hatchets before circling the dead marshals, chanting. I tuck the hatchets in the back of my jeans and ride off on my steed like never before. It feels like I'm riding on Pegasus as I trail the mare along the river. The moon is now out and full as fuck, no doubt having my back. I'm able to see this chubby little coward's shadow perfectly bouncing up and down on his horse along the edge of the water. I look up at the big guy who winks at me again, and I swear to God the moon mouths the words... That dude up! You bet your ass, Moon. With my horse now at top speed, I'm just a few lengths from him. Bearing down hard, I'm finally able to get close to him. I leap from my steed, knocking the mare off his horse in midair, just as we hit the edge of a cliff and plunge over a waterfall. Somehow I'm able to grab him around the neck as we flail through the air. I put him firmly in a chokehold and punch him in the face with my other arm as we descend. Directly in front of me, I see my steed kicking the mayor's horse in the face on the way down as well. The four of us plunge into the water forty feet below with unspeakable force. I rise out of the water like a great white sensing a kill. My steed pops up and swims over to land, shaking off the jump like a fucking boss. Down the river fifty yards or so, I see Van Buren's horse floating face down, dead. 
The current washes the massive body downstream, but the mayor is nowhere in sight. I dive back down underwater and I'm able to spot him with the bright light of the moon. Miraculously, he's still alive. His suit jacket is caught on a rock. He flails his arms and legs, struggling for breath. I'm going to go ahead and answer your question. Fuck no, I'm not going to let him drown, because he deserves worse. He deserves to see my eyes as I kill him. Maybe even my dick. Relax, it's not gay. It's just a show of one male being superior to and dominant over another male. Grabbing the back of his collar, I drag him out of the water and onto shore. As he gasps for breath on land, I pick him up and choke slam that motherfucker to the ground. He vomits out all of the water in his lungs. Studying my prey, I slowly circle him and pull both hatchets out of the back of my jeans. His eyes widen in terror as I begin to unzip my pants. I just told you I was going to do that, so why the fuck are you shocked? As I pull off my jeans, he tries to squirm away, grabbing it reeds of grass. Now butt-ass naked, I kick him in the ribs and he rolls over weeping a lot like Ron used to. Please don't kill me! Please don't kill me! Why the hell are you naked? Because I want you to know that a man killed you. A real man, not some fucking pussy who burned down someone's house and killed their entire family while they were helpless. This is how a real man kills another man when he wants to take him out of this world. Leaping on top of him, I pin his arms down with my knees, letting my entire dick and balls hang inches from his face. With a mighty force, I swing down hard with both my hatchets, chopping off each of his hands simultaneously. He screams in agony. I pick up his right hand off the ground and stuff it in his own mouth, muffling his cries. We lock eyes and I turn him over on his stomach, pulling down his trousers as he tries to scream. I think about raping him, but after what he did to my family, I need to go further. This time, I want to do something so fucked up that it will fuck up whoever finds him as well, knowing that this dead man did something horrific to deserve this. That's when I make the decision to reach over and pick up his bloody chopped-off left hands and jam it up his own ass. His eyes almost pop out of his head as he waves his bloody stumps around in violent protests while kicking his legs wildly. I can hear the crunching of his own bones echoing throughout the land as he bites down on the hand in his mouth. He tries to move, but he can't do shit. Unable to do anything but sit there with his whole goddamn hand up his own ass. Fuck him! When I finally decide he has had enough and it is time to end his life, I take a hard seat down on his back. I pull his head close to me and look up at the moon for approval to scalp him. The moon nods and gives me the final go-ahead. I take a deep breath and roar like the old chief as I place my hatchet to his scalp. When my blade pierces through the top of his brain, ending his life, I hear the screams of a thousand wolves howling with delight. A bald eagle flies down and lands in front of me. We make eye contact as the Indian spirit courses through my veins. I have become one of them. 
satisfied with my kill, I stand up and slap Van Buren's scalp against my dong before casually tossing it into the river, further asserting my manhood and dominance. After a full ten minutes of staring at my fully flexed physique reflecting off the water, I finally walk over to my steed and ride off butt-ass naked into the moonlight. I don't know where I'm going next, and I don't fucking care. In this moment, I feel a sense of peace knowing that the only two things I need in this cold, dark world are between my legs. My steed and my dick and balls. Congratulations. You've just completed the best book you've ever read in your entire life. Oh, were you hoping I was going to kill myself now? Like I said, I've lived a long life, so that might take a while. In the meantime, go stare at yourself in the mirror and dream about being me until the next one comes out. This recording of At Night She Cries While He Rides His Steed by Ross Patterson was presented by Dreamscape Media, LLC. Text copyright 2015 by Ross Patterson. Sound recording copyright 2015, Dreamscape Media, LLC.